and welcome to episode 10 of After the Ninth Year Insider Chuck Wagon Podcast. It's been a hot minute, but we're back. How are you doing, Date? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's windy here, so, you know, that's always fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know it's, uh, it's windy, but at least it's kind of warm enough. I'm at uh, Dad's place right now, and uh, I mean, training track's pretty much dry, and the, the corrals are dry, and there's not much snow laying around now, so it's uh, kind of exciting that way. Looking forward to, uh, I don't know actually where we're at with the season, but uh, we're looking forward to uh, at least getting the horses uh, in shape, that's for sure. I guess that's probably, like you've said in the past, one of your favorite parts is watching the horses do what they love and kind of get back into that shape. Yeah, especially with the, like, I mean, literally every horse had a year off. And, uh, you know, they're, they're competitive animals. Like even, you know, I, I worked the track the other day and, and, uh, they're out there running on the track, you know what I mean? Like, uh, they're just, they're just that, uh, that way they love to run. They love to stretch out. They love to be active. So, um, it's definitely cool to watch them in spring training too, as they kind of get in shape and, and, uh, you know, as you start, it's like slow, um, you know, they don't want to get up. They don't want to train. It's a pain to catch them. And then, you know, you, you get about, I don't know, 20, 30 days into them. And then uh, they start, you know, waiting at the gate to go back on the truck. And once they start losing their uh, winter hair and their fat and stuff like that, and they start wanting to train. And then it gets to a point about 45 days in where they're like, it's, it's probably the most um, crucial time of the year because uh, all the horses, they want to run so bad. They want to be blown out. They want to go 110 miles an hour. So they're <laughs> hot and they're, they're uh, uh, crazy at everything they do. And it's just a, kind of a nightmare to keep everybody in place and on track and, and stuff like that until you can finally get a few uh, runs in them and then they kind of settle down, but they're just such you know, hot animal. Cause I think they're in shape as uh, grandpa always used to say. So you kind of got to micromanage everything at that point, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's exciting to get underway for sure. As you're describing that, I'm imagining a tight hockey player who's like throwing a hissy fit. Cause he doesn't want to go to hockey in the morning. And then as soon as he gets on the ice, he's like all excited. Yeah. Or, or takes like a five minute shift. Cause they don't want to get off the ice. You know, that's uh that's uh, pretty comparable for sure. So I guess quickly here before we go into our interview, uh, what's new with you? What's going on? Well, as far as wagons, uh, as I kind of said earlier, we don't really, oh, I mean, I don't really know where we're at, honestly. Uh, and, and I keep getting that question uh, from a lot of people that I run into. And uh, everyone's like, you know, are you guys running this year? Uh, what's going on with the wagons? Is there going to be shows? What's Calgary doing? Uh, you know, all those kinds of things. What about Grand Prairie? Obviously, that's the first show. So um, truthfully, we I, I don't think we really know. I mean, uh, the morale's high and everyone's uh, optimistic. But, uh, you know, with how the government is right now, we don't really know uh, what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. And, and uh, if there is restriction still, uh, which it's kind of looking like there is in my eyes, come Grand Prairie time, um, you know, are those shows going to be able to go at that time, that date? Uh, are they going to be able to put on a regular show? Uh, what's the economy like? Uh, what's the, you know, oil patch is a big part of what we do. So, um, it's, it's pretty complicated right now. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a relationship, you know? Um, but we're still optimistic, uh, of, uh, you know, like everybody's going to start spring training and uh, there will be some shows just like they had last year, but 
as far as the WPCA and stuff right now, uh, I don't think anybody fully knows uh, exactly what's going to happen and how it's going to play out just because uh, we don't really know how long this, you know, whole COVID thing's going to, going to stick around. So. I mean, really, we had our first conversation about it a year ago in two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> it had a, a long hang time, that's for sure, or, or has continued to do. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of scary, too, you know, like uh, two years off and, and we're still not really recovering. And, uh, you know, just where we're at with the sport right now, um, there's a lot of guys that, are, that, that have been on the way out. And then now you kind of do this to them. And, uh, it's like, you know, there, 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 there's a handful of guys and you could go down the top of the list of the WPCA and I don't really know the CPCA much, but, um, even in the WCA, you, you can just go down the list and, and you can just start counting guys off that are, uh, if you know them and, and, uh, or even if you don't, I mean, they're older, um, they're, they're just at that point in their lives where they're not looking to wagon race for another 20 years, another 10 years. And, uh, you know, as bad as things are right now in the economy, uh, you know, a lot of guys are, are thinking about, Hmm, like, am I going to want to work forever? Am I going to want to, or am I going to be able to afford to do this for five years? If, if things don't turn around, um, if we don't, if we don't race or, or have a big season or get good sponsorship, um, am I even going to go this year? Uh, so there's a lot of guys that are, you know, um, their concerns are about, you know, selling out and, uh, or, or the shows that we're going to be able to race at. Can we get all 36 guys to every single show? Um, just those, those sorts of things. And, and, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's slightly selfish, which is, which I don't think anybody's immune to, you know, like, uh, I, I, I'm that way myself, like, and that's, you know, how, how your brain really works, right. You're, you're most concerned with, uh, uh, what concerns you for lack of a better explanation. Um, so, so it makes sense and, and it's not to their fault necessarily, but uh, I don't know, just from where I'm at with the, with, with this sport right now. And, you know, I, I quit three times already and I just keep getting <laughs> drugged back into it. But, um, where we're at right now, I just think that as a whole, we need to be more concerned with, uh, not with shows. We don't need to worry about what Calgary's doing. Like, I mean, if, if they, if, if they continue, which, I mean, we, we've seen the trend the last few years, we're down a bunch of wagons this year. Um, uh, uh, we're down some money now. And, uh, for, for whatever reasons those are, um, with the, with the trend of that show, it's, it's pretty clear that, that, as a sport, we can't keep putting all of our eggs or, or depending on putting all our eggs in that basket or, to, or just depending on that show or the big shows or uh, whatever our concerns. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but um, our concern should be, uh, you know, building up the sport, building up drivers, building up outriders, um, trying to get as many people involved as possible, trying to keep it affordable for everybody. Um, just like I said earlier, there's a, there's a lot of guys right now that are, um, you know, sitting at home and thinking, geez, I, I cannot do this for another year. And I'm, I'm one of them. Like, uh, um, if, if things don't go well this year, uh, I, I'm done, you know? So it's just like, uh, we're losing all of our, all of our young guys. We have been for a while. Um, and, and some people might not be too concerned with that, but, uh, as Eddie said, uh, in his interview, as, as we'll get into, um, when he started, 
you know, there was four outriders and whatnot. And there was just so much more opportunity for a guy to get started. And, and a guy like him who's had, I don't know how many years he's been in the sport says it in the interview, but um, for a guy like him, you know, he never, he, his, his life's completely different if we don't have four outriders back then. So um, you just see what these changes have done, you know, to our sport. And uh, to me, uh, I think as a, as a, as a group, as a, you know, a bunch of, you know, family and friends of the sport and fans and, and uh, whatever your relation is to the sport uh, our foremost concern should be how can, how can we get more drivers in? How can we um, keep the amount of drivers growing and not uh, decreasing and, uh, and not about what shows are going, uh, what's Calgary doing, what's Pinocchio doing, what's Grand Prairie doing? Um, you know, maybe we'd be better off just to, uh, make it a bit more affordable for everybody and, and, uh, let everybody pick and choose what shows they're going to, or, uh, try and try and build a, a more efficient circuit because the one we're on right now, I mean, geez, it really worked in 2013 and 2014 or, uh, 2007 or whenever the oil patch was, was real good. Um, we could afford to travel a lot. We could, uh, afford to, uh, pack this many horses we could afford to do a lot of things but um we've been on a bad bad uh downtrend uh for a few years now and then this uh covid stuff has really um you know put a tailspin on it so um that's that's really all i got i try to tie it into eddie's interview but uh um you know this is a, a platform so i'm just speaking on it that uh, that kind of that kind of needs to be our focus in my opinion and I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, I know a couple, I guess it's a couple months ago now, I did that article in the Western Horse Review. And, you know, the guys that I interviewed basically said the same thing as you did. So, I mean, it seems to be somewhat of a consensus out there. So. Yeah, well, just, you know, just as we're, just as things are still a little bit uncertain, uh, we're not really sure what's in the waters right now. And uh, there's, there's still a lot of decisions to be made, especially, especially if you're looking like in a five-year window, 10-year window, um, there's still a lot of time for, for us to change and, and uh, or, or grow. There's still a lot of time for, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I mean, there's for sure going to be huge changes uh, continuing to come. We're going to lose like geez, I don't know, 10, 15 really, really tough wagons in the next couple of years. Um, no matter if, if this year's success or not, uh, if we have a good year or not, um, and, and it's pretty self-explanatory what happens if this year isn't a success. So um, there's always going to be wagon racing. There's always going to be some form of it. Um, but as far as, uh, as where we've come from and, and where we're, you know, headed, um, it's just... Uh, it, we, we still got time. There's still reasons to be optimistic and, and, uh, and, uh, there's, there's still time for people to care about the sport and, uh, to try and build it. So, um, as a young guy that I, I again, that's selfish to me to think that way or, or whatever. Um, but as a young guy, that's just where I'm, where, where I'm standing. Uh, that's how it looks, you know, we got to focus on, um, building the sport because it, you know, it doesn't matter what you did in the sport, who you be, what races you run or none of that really matters if there's no sport and in, uh, or no, you know, real competitive sport in five to 10 years. And the other thing is, uh, you know, I, I was down in Iowa, maybe 
two years ago. I, I just forget. Um, I talked about it on the ago. podcast. Yeah, two years ago. So the last season we raced the fall, I went down to Iowa and they had a chuck wagon association. Now they were quite a bit more unprofessional than us. And, and uh, you know, the, that's no fault of their own. They just have the money and they didn't have the development that we've had over the years. But uh, they, they shut their association down. You know, they went from, I don't know what it was, 20 or 30 drivers uh, all the way down to eight. And then uh, they shut down and, and it wasn't for any other reason. Um, there was still eight that could keep going, could keep uh, competing, but um, you know, they, uh, they just didn't have enough drivers to, to keep continuing. They didn't have enough outriders, they didn't have enough uh, whatever. And that's ultimately the downfall of the sport. We need to focus on um, yeah, just, just getting as many people involved. So I've said that already. So um, with that, I, I guess uh, we'll head right on to the Eddie interview. Um, Eddie's been in the sport for a really long time. Uh, he's, he's, I said this in the interview, but, um, he's been one of the most passionate guys about the sport. He's, he's done a lot for it. Uh, he, he's all about the horses. Uh, he's just, he's just, you know, right into it. And, uh, he, he's been around for a long time. So, uh, he's, he was a good guy to get on and, and, uh, here's opinions and thoughts and, and a few stories as well. And with that, here's our interview. And now we were back with our guest. He is a five-time Calgary Stampede champion outrider, a five-time Pinoca Stampede champion outrider, a 29-year veteran of the sport. Let me welcome Mr. Eddie Melville. Eddie, how are you? Hey, guys. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I, I kind of thought, uh, well, actually, I, I, I texted you about, like, I don't know, <laughs> a month or two ago. That's kind of how it goes on this show. But uh, uh, I kind of thought you'd be a good guy to, to bring on. Um, you know, you, you've been around for so long. And every time, uh, you know, I talk to you, uh, it's been less and less in the recent years. Um, you know, I guess I haven't been around the WPCA as much and uh, maybe you not either. But um, every time I talk to you, you're always one of the most passionate guys about the sport. And you always have, uh, you know, so much knowledge and uh and uh, just love for this game. So uh, we're really excited to have you on. Well, appreciate that. Yeah, uh, the sport's near and dear to my heart. And I suppose at the end of the day, I'm a fan more than anything else. What about uh, what about a bit of your family history? Like obviously uh, uh, your brother Billy's involved in the sport. Uh, how, how did you exactly get into this thing? <clears throat> well, you know, just like other kids, uh, for me, it was real simple as my grandfather uh, just going down and watching him. And I think, you know, I lived in Calgary. And so you go down to the Calgary Stampede and I don't know, it just seemed so cool that I had an in more so than my other city kid friends, if you will, you know, uh, I could go down and be around the horses and see my grandpa. And, and, you know, I don't know. I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And, and I think there's a little bit of cowboy and everybody It's just, I had a chance to actually, you know, be on behind the scenes a little bit down where the horses are. And I don't know. I just always thought they were pretty cool. So when you were younger, did you have a, a bunch of horse experience? Like, were you like, you know, would you be considered a horseman uh, when you started coming around or, or was it kind of new to you and you kind of learned it a little bit later? Certainly not. Um, you know, I think you can get good at things, you know, if you, if you like what you're doing, you know, for sure. And uh, if you enjoy it, well, when you're truthfully, when you're a city kid, like, like I was, you know, you're, 
they don't expect a lot out of you, I don't think, as far as in comparison to maybe a country kid or something, right? So you have to kind of go over and above. So a lot of the things I learned, I learned, I, I would say, behind the back of, uh, <laughs> you know, of my grandpa and, and others. You know, I got the hired people to show me how to do things. Um, my aunt, I had a couple of aunts, Vicky and, and Wanda, that showed me a ton of things. Uh, Kind of when grandpa wasn't looking at times you know <laughs> so uh and uh you know there's a little bit of peer pressure when you grow up around there if you see someone your age doing something uh you know you want to learn how to do that too so you know uh grandpa was uh you know definitely my hero and my idol but he, i wouldn't call him necessarily the greatest teacher in the world and uh so you almost had to show them you could do it and then you were allowed to do it. You know, I just remember learning how to pick feet in the barn. I got the hired man to show me and I walked in the barn or grandpa walked into the barn one day and I'm already doing it. And if I would have asked him if I could do it, the answer would probably be no. So <laughs> That's funny. That's how I, that's how I learned a lot of things too. You just, you just you know, start you doing just it. Do then... them, right. Yeah, yeah, you just yeah. start doing it and then uh, they can't tell you not to because then you might do it again and, and so you don't mess it up or whatever. That's yeah, was a few different things like that was my grandpa as well. And that's funny too because, uh, you know, just hanging around, it doesn't matter if you're a city kid or, or you have experience or you don't. Uh, I, I, I mean, there's just numerous people that uh, have been in my life and in the wagon community that, that come around, knew nothing, and then they end up loving it, sticking around forever. And then, uh, you know, like maybe starting a career in it, uh, whether it's like equine massage or, uh, you know, shoeing, out riding, driving, those types of things. It just certainly rubs off on you. It's, it's contagious. For sure. And, and, you know, I think if you, if you resort to, I, I wouldn't say, well, maybe it is being sneaky, but you resort to those things to learn how to, to work basically, or to do these things, you know, those are the ones or the people that, tend to do pretty well at it for sure what what time uh or sorry what year was that roughly and, and what were those early days like 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 i mean it obviously wasn't as sophisticated as it was now was it you know probably not but at the end of the day uh you know wagon race is still a wagon race you know that really right. hasn't changed a bunch you know the the rigs are you know, fancier going down the road and the accommodations are better. And, uh, you know, I suppose there's more, you know, the outfits as a whole might be better, but, uh, uh, a good outfit was a good, then was a good outfit now and a wagon race was still a wagon race. So it really hasn't changed a pile. I don't think. Okay. Okay. That's fair. You know, in that, in that sense of it, like there's probably been a lot of change, but a lot of changes as far as, uh, professionalism, that kind of thing feeding programs are way better um but you know a race is still a race were the shows uh still like as big as turnouts as they are nowadays or, or what were they like you know when i was younger uh you know before i started i didn't go to a lot of the shows uh, we might get up to Pinoca and high river but uh you know i hadn't been to grand prairie and i hadn't been to morris and all those other shows so i'm not real sure what it, what it was like but I know it was they were more you know probably half the field were weekend warriors uh you had to enter shows so you might see this guy this show you might not see him that next show you know I remember we used to have a pile outfits in Troshu and then 
you know, about 10 of them wouldn't go to Grand Prairie and you might see them again in Strathmore. So, you know, it was a lot different time back then, but, uh, you know, all, uh, all those guys uh, helped get us to where we have got to today. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and uh, um, it's, yeah, it's certainly gotten more professional where like now, if you're going to be involved, it's kind of, it's really hard to do one foot in one foot out. That's for sure. Because it's just such a cost and, and to compete now in the WPCA is just um, absolutely insane. The, the amount of effort and, and uh, resources it takes. Um, so you started out riding. I got down here in, in 1991. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 91. We all went to uh Dallas Dorchester, Jimmy Nevada, and Randy Robinson had an outriding school in Rimby. And there was, I remember the, there was about 18 of us there first day. I think a couple of them retired between day one and two. There'd be, I remember they filmed it. Uh, Boy, that film would be sure good to watch right now because I remember we were watching it after we'd do it and uh, full on commentary by Jim Nevada. And that was pretty funny when he was running us off. Get on, you doofus. <laughs> but, uh, and then a bunch of us went to Grand Prairie. And I think out of that school, the only, the only guys that really lasted, if you will, were Quinn Dorchester was at that school, myself, and probably Real King were probably the three guys that came out of that school. And Rio was real young at the time. That's that's still a pretty successful school, though. Like, I mean, I've done a couple schools, and and uh, we might get a couple guys that ride for a couple of years, but usually they they fade out. I mean, uh, yourself, Quinn, and Rio—that's uh, that's quite a few years packed into three guys. Yeah, uh, you know, it was it was it was neat to go to that. You know, they just had a wagon tied behind a three wheel quad or a trike. You know, those. Uh, ATV type vehicles and we basically did barrel work all day long and uh, yeah it was it was really cool and uh, got you known a little bit you know by Dallas and I remember Bunky Stewart was there and and uh, you know and you find out for a lot of the people that went it wasn't for everybody so uh, a few of them went to Grand Prairie and a few of them we never did see again so you know over time I suppose when you hold one of those schools, if you can get three or four guys out of it, I think it's pretty, pretty successful. For sure. For sure. So if Jim put it on, was he kind of your mentor, like in the early starts or sorry, early parts of your career uh, or, or did somebody else kind of more or less show you the ropes? Well, I had uh, Jimmy was definitely, you know, Jimmy was my camp, if you will, when I started out riding. You know, Jim's like a brother to me. That was family. Everybody has a camp, and that was mine. That's the one I felt the best at. I had input in, you know, as far as horses. I helped them buy horses, train, and everything else. So definitely Jim, uh, and that's who I traveled with. So Jimmy, of all the people, you know, when I started riding, had the biggest influence on me. It was definitely Jim. But before that, uh, before I even got into out riding, there was a my grandpa had two two guys that uh alan and bruce Mc, or uh, alan and max mcmillan and they rode for my grandpa for a lot of years and they're from stetler they're good friends with neil walsenbaugh and everything and uh their dad actually bruce had a little three acre plot here just you know just up on 17th avenue in calgary it's all been plowed over now and communities are there but it was a little three acre farm Grandpa used to leave some outriding horses out there. And I don't know, he saw something in me and 
he convinced Grandpa to leave, you know, to give him an old outriding horse uh, for me to go out there and ride him. So um, I remember it was so huge. I think I was 13. And so I had to ride that old thoroughbred bareback uh, for, you know, a whole summer type thing. He wouldn't let me have a saddle. So it was really good training when you're 13 years old riding a, a thoroughbred bareback. Uh, you learn to find the middle pretty quick. And for, you know, a kid like me that didn't grow up riding horses necessarily, it was, uh, it was unbelievable training uh, to get started the right way. And, uh, you know, that's what probably when I, when I kind of passed those tests is when I really had it in my mind I was going to outrun. That's funny you say that because I can't remember, like, you're, forgive me, but it was one of you all, it was uh, Sean Caffro, you or Wayne Wright, I want to say, but uh, some, one of you guys told me when I was 15, I was learning how to, or 14, sorry, or however young I was, I wasn't riding yet. I was learning how to ride. And uh, one of you guys told me um, how to saddle. Was that you? It could have been. Um, you know, that was the experience that I had. Uh, I, I was just told by Bruce that, you know, if you can't ride without a saddle, you won't be any good in one. And, uh, it, you know, I think it helps you teach balance. You know, you can feel the horse and, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it, you know? Yeah, no, certainly it, it, it takes away your, uh, it's, it's, it's almost like a crutch if you don't know what you're doing. Right. And then all of a sudden, if you have to ride with a horse, then you have to be, you, you then you have to put your, your body in tune with the horse's body and, and, and his rhythm. Right. So, yeah. um, anyways, uh, so, Five-time Pinocchio, five Calgary, you must have had some, uh, you know, pretty solid wagons that, that you uh, stuck with predominantly throughout your career. Uh, who were those, those drivers and those outfits uh, that, that uh, you know, you, you spent a long duration with? Well, uh, you know, the first big outfit I ever rode for was Reg Johnstone. Um, and oh, I was yeah. off and on, I was off and on with Reg, uh, probably throughout my whole career until Reg retired. Uh, he, but he was the first big wagon that gave me a shot to ride uh, at the Pinocchio Stampede. Um, pretty funny how he hired me. Uh, we were, it was our first year and uh, we were just, you know, back then we had four outrider shows at High River, Pinocchio and Calgary. And uh, I was in Pinocchio and we were, I think it was the morning of the, first night me and Quinn Dorchester and a guy named Darcy Elder were eating breakfast and Reg comes over uh said you're not good enough to throw pegs for a hard starting outfit are you and I said yes I am and then he just walked away so, <laughs> so I didn't know what he meant so I asked Quinn and those I said did he just hire me and he said well it sure sounds like it and sure enough he did so that was good and he yeah. took me into Calgary so I wrote a lot for Reg he was and Reg had a good chance and then you know, I wrote a lot for Jason Glass and, and, you know, then it was probably Neil Walsenbaugh. Um, Neil had some huge outfits and just, you know, just couldn't win Calgary, uh, but was right mm -hmm. in the thick of it all those years. So, you know, for a lot of years, uh, you know, I, I started riding in 91 and I won, you know, my first Calgary in 2005. So I had 15 wow. years <laughs> before I, uh, before I won it. And, you know, it wasn't looking like I was ever going to be a part of a championship team. Uh, been to that final heat just about every year. Uh, had my first year in it was with Norm Cuthbertson. He uh, got day money on night nine off the one barrel. And it was in 1994. 
and he picked third out of the hat when they pulled out of the hat and he had one and four left and we just come off winning day money the night before on one and he said he had the first one he grabbed he threw it back and grabbed the other one and he grabbed four barrel <laughs> so <laughs> i felt bad for him like you know and that was our chance to win it there for sure but uh, yeah yeah you know and just it just didn't happen and then until for me for until 2005 with luke turnier mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 I remember that. I remember when Luke won that year. What about uh, um, what about Dorchester's outfit? Remember that year he won the Triple Crown? You were riding for yeah. him that whole year, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. That was uh, what was funny about that was uh, I I hadn't been riding for Troy. Me and Troy are good friends. We grew up together, but I, I didn't ride a lot for him for quite a few years. And uh, he just came to me and Grand Prairie. I never even asked him. He said, do you want to ride? And I said, sure. So uh, I said to my brother, I said, because Troy finished second to your, your grandpa, I believe, the year before in the world standing. And uh, he had a mm. hell of a one-two one, barrel outfit. He had a black lead team there. And uh, I said to Billy, I said, Troy could be half tough this year if he can find a second outfit on the three-four barrel. You know, because he's got the mm -hmm. one-two barrel outfit and they're pretty good. You know, real good. Yeah. Well, he hit the first night. We have a four barrel and he hits it and they work terrible. They just didn't. So he was kind of out of the show. So then he hooks the good outfit the next two nights. And then uh, he gets to the three barrel on night four and he just, he just slaps an outfit together. Uh, puts a wheel team he had, I think from the year before on the lead, stuck a couple of brand new horses on the wheel just to see what would happen. Why not? And he went out there and he ran about three wide and got third day money and won his heat by about three lengths. I'm like, oh my God, what have we got here? And then the next night he drew the three barrel again. So he hooked the same bunch and it was a carbon copy the night before. Hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, he's got his three, four barrel outfit. And that's the outfit that did it. Uh, he, it was, it was the most amazing outfit I'd ever seen in the sense that they weren't the best outfit I ever saw, but they, uh, they were probably the hardest finishing outfit I ever saw with possible exception of some that uh, George Norman used to have back in the day or Norm Cuthbertson. But I can't mm -hmm. think, and maybe Jason Glass too. Jason always had a lot of finishing outfits. Yep. But uh, I don't remember any of them finishing any harder than that. When we won the Pinocchio, when Troy won the Pinocchio Stampede, he was four wide for half the race and three wide the rest of the way. And uh, I just, I didn't think they could get there from there. <laughs> he just kept running them down and running them down in that long stretch and he won it. And then in Calgary, uh, you know, every time he, he hooked that three four barrel outfit, he just kept the dirt out of their faces, kept them wide. And those horses just ran all day long. And uh, yeah, that was a pretty, uh, incredible outfit that he had as far as run and uh it's good to see him win the triple crown like that it was it was really nice to be a part of that with troy because we did grow up together for sure for sure yeah and and troy's always like i mean i don't know anybody who's got something bad to say about troy he's, he's one of the uh you know guys that everybody gets along with more or less on the on the wagon circuit and and to your point about the outfit finishing i was gonna say like i i didn't really keep up with it too much uh during pinoca and whatnot because um i can't remember if that was that was 2012 so i don't even know yeah. yeah i would have been 
yeah. that would have been just starting. That was a hundred year, right? In Calgary. Yeah. I would have been just yeah. starting out riding, I think. So I don't know if I was around, I like, I wasn't paying much attention in Pinocchio uh, is what I was going to say. Um, but then Calgary, I remember like, okay, just want it, you know, the 10 days start to unfold. Some guys roll out, you know, some guys roll in. You, you just kind of see how the standings, you know, start to, to shake out. And, and then Troy's right there, just won the last show. Everybody knows uh, that he's got these, you know, two outfits and, and whatnot. And then, man, that, that, uh, the dash for cash, it was like, what was it, by one hundredth of a second or something? Like, it was just insane. The three wagons he come down up, right to the wire. Yeah, he ended up beating Doug Irvine by one one hundredth. And to this day, I don't know how they calculated that because Troy was on the outside, Doug was on the rail you know, on the inside. So they must've been, I don't know, 50 or 60 feet apart. How you can tell one one hundredth of a second, you know, I don't know, I guess they can, but uh, I was the most, I was the most shocked guy in Calgary when they told us that we won it. I had, I yeah. thought we ran out of racetrack. We were fourth the whole way. There was, it was a muddy track. You couldn't see anything anyways. Uh, and I remember, uh, like Jason Glass won the race, but Jason had a penalty in the infield, so we didn't know that either. And then I had to go present the Orville Strangquist uh, Rookie of the Year to, uh, I think it was Cody McCurr that year, mm. with my mother and uh, walking off the stage, and uh, and there's Troy and Chad Splad, who uh, was the other outrider, and they're standing there, and I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing here? And they said, we won it. And I said, well, how? <laughs> he said, well, they told us that Jason had gotten a penalty. I said, well, then Doug won it. And he said, no, we beat him by a hundred. I couldn't believe it. it was, we, uh, yeah. I guess someone was looking down on us there. And uh, one thing we were thinking, and, and this sounds maybe, I don't know, it was a special moment for me and for obviously Troy's whole family, but my grandpa and, and, Troy's grandpa were really, you know, close buddies from the forties all the way up. And my grandpa died that year in 2012. And uh, so we're sitting on that stage and I think I might even have told Troy, I said, I wonder what those two buggers are thinking, looking down on us right now. You know, maybe, maybe they're thinking the kids did okay today. Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't know that, 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 that is crazy. And, and I, I remember, um, as far as Troy winning, like it was just, uh, you know, like, like Troy's the guy that has family heritage. He, he's been around it forever, uh, grew up in it as a kid and, uh, just never seemed to get that big one done. And then finally on the hundredth year, he has the outfit and then everything just kind of shakes out and, and, uh, you know what, you run tough enough years, uh, it, it just, eventually happens so uh, it was special to see you know a guy like that who's, who's put so much time in uh, uh finally get that one you know checked off his list yeah it was uh he was carrying on the family tradition there for sure and and it was also nice for him to win Pinocchio because he was the Tommy Dorchester dash for cash so you know the history and tradition of the sport uh you know is really what makes it special I think no for sure absolutely um I want to kind of shift gears here and focus on uh, the the end of your career um i this is one part that i'll never forget uh watching and and i hope you don't mind talking about it but um it was that night in dawson after the races uh, you 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 had a very very bad injury and and uh i i, I can't remember 
what year that was exactly, but it, but it was towards the end. You mind kind of walking through us, uh, you know, what happened that night and then, then uh, you know, the year off and, and then leading up to the comeback? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I was probably in the last year or so anyways. I mean, who knows, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I blame myself for that more than anybody else. Uh, I let my guard down, I suppose, a little bit. And uh, I, Chad Harden had a horse, a uh, gray horse that was, uh, oh, he, he was new and he was nervous and, and a few other things. And anyways, we, uh, he was tough to get to and from the track. He, uh, he seemed to notice everything. Those ears were just going left and right every time you got on him. And, uh, and he was very unpredictable. And he actually worked pretty good when you got him in the barrels. Uh, I held leaders with him that night. It was his, probably his second trip ever. And he worked pretty good. And uh, anyways, uh, we were galloping back after the race. And uh, I remember he stopped right in the infield, just like a cap roping horse. And I had to get off him and lead him and take him back to where the outriders are and, and snap him up. Well, uh, the work I do with the banquet and the equine award and i'm always filming stuff when i wasn't riding and everything anyways we're filming luke on the show and uh those horses are tied the two outriding horses are still tied there while the other horses left until we got done filming and doing all this kind of stuff so i went with chad's daughter montana uh put her on the on the one horse and then i was going to ride this horse back and he was just shaking he was washed out he was you know just shaking like a leaf and i remember her saying you know, boy, we should just lead him back. And I said, oh, no, 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 he's, he's got to learn. He'll be all right. And so I jump on him with my outriding bag and we're just going back. And uh, I don't know if he saw the tractor or what that was on the track at the time or what, but he was acting goofy. I was about ready to get off him and he flipped over backwards on me. And uh, I remember the, I still had my foot in the pedal and, you know, he came down on top of me and snapped my leg in half, and, you know, broke the femur. So, uh, I should have probably listened to Montana if I was smart. <laughs> yeah. I remember coming up on that because I come out, like, I don't know what took me so long, but it was after, well, after everything was going on and there weren't many people around. And then, uh, me and someone else, I forget who I was just kind of walking with, just chatting, uh, then come up on you. And, and, uh, uh, then the ambulance came and, and then I think Donna was there too, right? Donna David. So, um, yeah. And I just I remember, like, remember geez, uh, that I can't remember who was all there. I know that I was, I know that hurt really bad, <laughs> but <laughs> I remember when they were going to give me the gas, you know, to, I said, is this stuff test? Because I got out riding on Wednesday in uh, Rocky Mountain Homes. I remember Logan Gorse said, quit being a tough guy. Take, you know, I was, kind of, yeah. I was okay as long as I was laying there. But the minute they moved me, oh boy, that hurt. But, you know, things like that happen if you're going to be in our business. So uh, I was lucky and, you know, I, I was just thankful that I could walk again, you know. So that so then what happened? You you were in the hospital. You got surgery in Grand Prairie. Is that right? Uh, no, uh, I got surgery. I guess that was Sunday night. I got surgery on Tuesday in Dawson, and I was up there. Oh, yeah. So I stayed there for two weeks, and uh, you, there was no there was no beds in Alberta. So yeah, I had to get transferred from one hospital to another, and there was no beds to be had. So I had to kind of stay there, which. You know they treated me well up there uh and uh 
remember Mayor Dale Bumstead coming saw me just about every day. <laughs> uh, couple of our old uh, sponsors that we had with Jimmy the Borek uh, Tamara uh, by Pondcom and a few other people that I knew up there so I wasn't without any company uh, but when I got back uh, to Calgary finally um, the uh, my leg was crooked and it was 34 degrees crooked they said so so they had to redo her they had to take all the screws and pins and everything out of her and, and redo it in, in September and then uh, Oh, six or seven months later, it wasn't healing at all again um, in March, so they had to redo it again. And uh, the third time it worked, it worked good, and I could walk again. Oh, good. Uh, so it was good. So, yeah, I couldn't walk from August till March until they put that third uh, third surgery. I I didn't know if I was ever going to walk again. It just wasn't healing good. So, but I was lucky. Uh, they did it right, and you know, I was back again. So. Yeah, I remember that. And then, and then now as we're talking about, it, I'm just kind of remembering, like, uh, I remember you coming back that following season, if I'm wrong, correct me, but, um, and then I remember you just kind of, you weren't sure if you were going to ride again, were you? And then you just started kind of trying it out and feeling it again, or, or what did the come, like, how did you get back into it? Well, I, uh, I, I just, in my own mind, I don't know why I felt like this, but you know, I, I just hated going out like that. I really did. It just bothered me. Um, yeah. So I, you know, when you're going through rehab and we've all done it, uh, I'm not saying I've done it more than anybody else or anything, but you need to me, I've always been a guy that needed to set goals for himself. And uh, to me, being able to walk without a limp was not a goal, you know, cause it's got no real timeline to it. So after that third surgery and, uh, you know, my goal was to outright again, whether it be one heat, uh, all of a sudden you have a timeline because, you know, it's going to have to be the next season, right? So, you know, I, I gritted my teeth and it was very humbling when I went back to the gym and, you know, started doing the elliptical and going to these boot camps and this and that. I had no muscle on that leg at all. And, uh, but in my mind, my whole motivation was, uh, you know, you can quit or you, you know, this goal that you have is coming up quick. So, you know, you, you better stay after it. And that's, that was just my own way of motivating myself to get better. So, uh, I hadn't been on a horse since I got hurt other than I rode one over, uh, in 20, like beer before I'd get lifted on and, uh, you could ride one over and back at Pinocchio. That's the only time I ever got on a horse. But I couldn't swing on a horse, you know, like outrider style or anything like that. So I went to Grand Prairie, uh, you know, just to watch. But I threw my outriding bag in and I said, well, I'll get on a couple in the morning and see, if, see where I'm at. And uh, Roger Moore saw me and he had a late outrider the first night. And he saw me after the races and they just told me, you know, Good, you're here. You're riding tomorrow night. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, Roger, I haven't even been on a horse in two years. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. He said, I said Oh my God. So I got up the next morning and uh, I went and got on two for Chad Harden uh, just to see if I could do this again. And it went pretty well. And 
you know, I was back in the saddle that night out riding for Roger and, uh, you know, I, I owe Roger a lot because I didn't think I was ready and he believed in me that I was. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just need some help. doesn't matter how old you are just to get, you know, kickstart things again. And, uh, I remember when I hit the jump in that race and was on the track with the rest of you guys, uh, you know, that was the most amazing feeling I'd had in years, just being back in that saddle and three surgeries and the rehab and all that kind of stuff. It, it felt really good. It was a sense of accomplishment for me. And, uh, and I, I realized how much I still love the sport too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, 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 and that's, you know, super impressive too. Like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not calling you old or anything, but you know, a guy my age breaks his femur, the, the recovery is going to be a lot um, smoother. And then, you know, you, 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 you break your femur. That's the biggest bone in your body. Not to mention uh, they say it's the most painful bone to break. And then uh, to have a whole season off, not to mention the off season and rehab and, and so on and so forth. But um, it, you know, it's just pretty impressive. And I, and I misworded that when I asked you, uh, you weren't unsure if you were coming back. We were, you know, watching you. Everybody knows Eddie. Everybody knows um, Eddie's the outrider and, and so on and so forth, right? And uh, to me, that might have been just the narrative that everybody was kind of pushing or expecting, uh, just giving back or just giving the circumstances of, of, of that, you know, of your situation. Then you come back. And then how many, how many years did you end up riding after that? Well, yeah. Uh... I rode uh, 2017 and, you know, I, when I did make it back that year, which was Grand Prairie, which was in May, uh, I, I didn't know where it was going to take me. I really didn't. I kind of accomplished that goal a little bit. And I didn't go to the next show, which was Saskatoon. Um, anyways, uh, Chance Vegan phoned me. I remember I was working downtown and, and Chance phoned me and he said, uh, and Chance was in 35th hole at, at a 36 at the time. <laughs> and he said, I got a plan. He said, uh, what, what is your plan? I said, well, I don't really know. And he said, well, you, you're probably going to be retire at Calgary. Uh, he said, uh, you come ride for me and we're going to win Calgary and then you can retire. That's what he told me on the phone. And I kind of told him, I said, you're nuts. And I hung up the phone for, I said, well, let me think about it. And I hung up the phone and then it was the weirdest thing, Dayton. Uh, I, uh, all of a sudden I got competitive right as soon as I hung that phone up. I just, I don't know, I hung, I humped up or whatever you want to call it. And I, and I phoned Chance back probably within five minutes. And I, I remember telling him, I said, well, if you're crazy enough to believe in me, I better be smart enough to, to prove you right. I'm in and uh you know it was the neither one of us were both of us were kind of written off I think at that point and uh anyways we led the Calgary Stampede uh I think for the first six or seven nights that year uh it was we didn't quite win it uh Kurt Benzmiller won it but uh he made chance made the final heat and and you know we knew we were in town so that was a that was pretty cool. And then I, I had it in my head. I better, better shut her down. I better quit pushing the envelope. So that's what I did. And then I, next year I went to Grand Prairie just cause I'm part of the board and went to watch and met a few other guys asked me to ride. 
And I said, no, I'm done. They showed me the door. I, I uh, you know, in a nice way, I should uh, shut her down. And, and I stuck to it. And then we were in High River and we were a little bit short outriders at that time. Just some of our new guys hadn't quite uh, come along yet. They're, they're sure there now, but at that time they were still not too many guys were riding too many heats. And Chance had one of his outriders uh, get hurt and he phoned me in the afternoon on the Sunday of High River and he said, I need you tonight. I, I need you. And I went and rode that night and I was hooked again. It was like giving an alcoholic a drink and, uh, you know, you just can't do it. And so I felt that felt really good. So I went to Pinocchio and rode the rest of the year, actually. So uh, I was back. So I'm not very good at this uh, retirement thing, I guess. I, I remember that we, you, we kept retiring you like, uh, the, I don't know, uh, yeah. you know, kept thinking you were done and you just kept coming back, but, but uh, power to you because um, you know, like you said, we were so short outriders that year and, and, and definitely the one thing that, we could use well obviously he's an experiment or sorry an experienced outrider um but not to mention a guy like yourself like you know for for me personally and and i'm sure many others obviously is what the question is but uh you were a mentor uh for for a lot of the guys and and uh you know like for me and in my experience with you um you really helped me out with a lot of like the the mental stuff and, and how to approach out riding. And I remember like, you know, little things would happen on the track or, or with the horse or whatever. And you would just, you know, uh, share some of your wisdom. And, and then all of a sudden I would just think about it and think about it. And then, uh, you know, you, you just really help set a good example for, for me. So um, my question is uh, at what point did you kind of transition to that more mentorship role uh, if there was one for you and who were some of the younger guys that you mentored? Well, um, you know, it's hard to put a timeline on when you went from being the young guy to the old guy, but I think, <laughs> you know, when, when guys that are older, then you retire, you just kind of move up the, the ranks and, you start looking in front of you and there's not too many guys older than you because you know, they've all shut her down. So that's pretty well, it kind of sneaks up on you a little bit, but you know, when I was right. uh, to, to your question, um, you know, I was so lucky when I started uh, back in 1991, you know, there were so many unbelievable outriders that I looked up to, uh, you know, that would help you, you know, and I always had it in my mind that, uh, you know, if you're willing to listen, there's always someone and you're willing to learn that there's always someone there willing to help. It's when you, it's when you know too much too soon or, or you think you do, you know, that's when people let you starve a little bit until, you know, you figure out that these guys can actually help you. I, I had guys like, well, Jimmy Nevada, just for, you know, the first guy, Jimmy was, uh, everybody had different styles. Jimmy was tended to be hard on you at times, but you always knew, you know, that he had your back. And if you could prove yourself to Jim, then you're, you'd probably be all right. And, but we also had Jimmy Shields. I had uh, uh, Randy Robinson, like I mentioned, Gary Lauder was around Dale Gray, you know, and Dale rode for 30 years. You know, he's one of the best of all time. Uh, guys like that, Randy Armstrong, my uncle, who's the father of Rory Armstrong is riding with us now. You know, Randy was mm -hmm. a big help to me. Um, so I, you know, I had so many guys, Gary May and Brian Mann were two, uh, as well, uh, missing guys, obviously Jimmy Shield. I don't know if I mentioned him, but Jimmy was, you know, a very close friend of mine. So I learned when those guys took the time to help me, 
you know, that when it's your turn to help a young guy and, you know, I've seen so many of my, you know, these young guys that are getting going, you know, I just see myself in them. I was that kid, you know, mm -hmm. trying to learn the ropes and uh, if they're willing to put the work in and they're willing to listen, you know, then I, I figured I owed it to them to, to give them a little piece of my time and, and, and try to help them out. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, there's, there's been so many good kids come up to, and they're, I don't even call them kids. They're just young men that, you know, had the same dreams and goals that I had. Right. And, and, you know, I was, what was interesting was, you know, I think I could relate to a lot of them because, you know, you name a mistake that was made on that track and I made it, I'll guarantee it. I, I jumped the rail in Morris, Manitoba for Mike Vegan one time, you know, that was a little tough. Uh, you know, I've done all kinds of crazy things that uh, I suppose we can laugh at them now, but they were sure hard or hard on a young guy at the time. And so when I see guys struggling or ready to pack it in and quit, I've been there, you know, I've been there many times. So maybe that helped, uh, you know, the way that I could talk to these young guys going, you know, I've been there too. You know, you're not alone. The part of your question was who, you know, who have I seen come through the ranks that maybe I helped out a little bit. Um, I mean, the obvious one, I remember when Chance Vegan started, that was funny. Uh, it, what was funny about it was uh, we all knew that Chance, we were just waiting for him to grow up and he ended up, but I was there when he had his first race in Calgary. Uh, I think Mike fired a couple guys and next thing I know, over comes Chance and he come over in sweatpants and uh, <laughs> wasn't sure where he's going to put his whip. He had sweatpants on, I'll never forget that. And uh I think we had him throwing stove and uh, go out there and there's a couple guys that are just filling his head full of everything, you know, don't do this, make sure you do that, you know, filling it. And I guess I told everyone to shut up and said, Janice, come with me. <laughs> and, and out we went and he did great. And five world champions later. <laughs> so I didn't really do anything to help his riding or how he getting on or anything like that. Just, you know, I guess being a friend to him more than anything, but, Chad Fike is the guy that uh, I take a lot of pride in, uh, you know, because I was there with him right from the, from the very beginning. So, you know, Chad definitely uh, really proud of him. What was he like when he started? Well, what was funny was uh, I knew Chad and Jordy as kids. Uh, I rode probably the last eight or nine years of Ronnie David's career for Ronnie. Uh, and those kids would be around, you know, and then when Ronnie quit, which was around 2000, I think it was, uh, and Chad was probably 12 years old and Jordy might've been 13, whatever, but, you know, I just knew him as kids. Well, I was at work in 2005 and, uh, what we used to do is we'd work all day or work till four or five o'clock. And then we'd head out to Jimmy Nevada's and we'd train at night. And I get this phone call and it's Chad Fike and, uh, he said, hey, Eddie, it's Chad Fike here. I'm Ronnie's grandson. Would I want to learn how to outride. Would you help me? And I said, well, sure, Chad. Uh, we're training tonight. Be out there. And, and his grandpa's a neighbor of Jimmy Nevada, so just down the road from each other. So he knew where it was. Okay. And anyways, out he came. Uh, and uh, we had an old outriding horse with Buddy Ben's Miller. I think his name was Vic. He was about 18 years old, little gray horse. I said, well, I'll start him out on that horse. And I was about ready to show him how to get on, and he was on. I mean, just boom, right to saddle him. Oh, okay. 
what are we working with here? And you don't see that very often when you're dealing with new guys, if you will. It's different right. with guys like it's different with guys like Chance Vegan and you, Dayton, that we all watched grow up getting on horses and this kind of stuff. But Chad hadn't been around. So anyways, uh I think it's fair to say, and this is absolutely no run on Chad, but uh he hadn't been on very many thoroughbreds. But the one thing I could tell and right from day one is is what a horseman he was. He was just a hell of a horseman and a good athlete. He was a skinny 17-year-old kid is what he was. But we'd go out there and we practice. And I remember just telling him, Chad, uh, you know, don't get discouraged. You'll, you'll find your seat on these horses and you just need a little bit of practice. You're going to be just fine. And we set up some snow fence in the, in the field and a set of barrels. And uh, as the spring went on, we started getting on more you know, breaking some horses. We had about 10 horses to get on, I think, breaking some new ones. And I'd never seen anybody that was that natural. You know, it just comes so easy to him. It was, I don't know, the guy that handed Tiger Woods his first golf club might feel the same way, but that's what it felt like for me. And I remember telling my brother, I said, this guy's going to be a world champion. Like, there was no question in my mind. Um, mm -hmm. Just the way he could handle a horse, uh, at the top barrel, uh, you know, we have no wagons out there. So a lot of these horses will stop. A lot of them will take off, you know, when there's no wagons, you're just in the middle of a big field. And somehow he could put those horses up that top barrel exactly where he wanted them. And, and he was so athletic. It was just one little hop and he was in the saddle. And I, I'm not embarrassed to admit that uh, here I'm showing him, you know, I'm, I'm teaching him, if you will, but I kept watching him and I was picking up stuff that he was doing that I started trying uh, <laughs> and, he'd, and he'd never even rode a race. And I'm not embarrassed to say that he was that good. So uh, it was no surprise to me. Uh, all he needed was experience. It's the only thing and you can't teach somebody experience. That's all he needed. And so it was no surprise to me to see him, uh, you know, win his world title and his rookie of the year and his most improved and just the short career that he had. Uh, you know, you, he was just that good right from the, you know, right from the start. And it's no surprise to see how well he's doing with his truck wagon outfit. You know, he's just got a, a gift for the game, I think. For sure. I, I actually, uh, I said that on the last podcast that we just had with him, uh, was that like, you know, had he outrode longer, like no question in my mind, he would have been one of the most dominant outriders ever like uh he just had a whole handle on it like a tall guy like that he's he's lightweight too um you know he's, he's obviously bigger than you know some guys but uh for for as tall as he is he gets a lot of an advantage uh you know being able to get on those horses and stuff like that not to mention being able to handle them and then he's also one of the like uh calmest coolest collected guys i see i don't know what's going on in his head but but on the outside he looks just completely uh level-headed so um for sure for he sure was, uh, he was he was the opposite of me that way he, you know he could stay cool and calm i got a little excited at times but uh no he uh you know he's got it you know every, you know when they say check the boxes you know he, he checks all of them so mm -hmm. 
Yeah. For sure. He was one of the guys that actually helped me too. Uh, he was riding for my dad at the time what the year I started. And then he kind of filled that role for me, uh, like the very, very first years and, and showed me, you know, a few things. He was out there when I got sanctioned to ride on the track for the first time when I was like 13 or 14. And, and uh, he was out there helping me show me how to jump horses and, and stuff like that. So it's funny how it <laughs> just trickles down. Eh? And, yeah, and the just, one thing it's passed down, yeah. The, the one thing I wanted to say too, uh, I just didn't want to gloss over that is, is, uh, about the thing with chance vegan about, uh, that, that little conversation you have, you know, come here chance and, and you take them out and, and just keep it, uh, um, I don't know, keep it real, I guess, uh, with a guy, like, especially a young guy. And, and, and that's exactly the same role that you filled for me was that, you know, you got all this other shit going on in your head and guys saying this and that, and you're thinking about what you're going to do with your lead line and how hard you're going to take the horse up to the top barrel and, and just all this stuff. And then, uh, I don't know, you just, you just had a way of just, uh, communicating and then it would just seem so much more, um, I don't know, like, like possible. It, it, it just wasn't such a, a giant feat. It just, it just, you just really helped uh, um, conceptualize everything and, and, and just with the whole mental side. So um, that was a, that's a really, really good, good uh, uh, little story you brought up there. They say, I heard Ty Murray say one time when he was on dancing with the stars, <laughs> he said, you're never really ready for it. It just becomes your turn. <laughs> so <you> know, <laughs> when you're riding out the gate, you know, uh, you've done the groundwork at that point at some point you got to trust yourself and go and do it someone giving you a whole bunch of swing thoughts before you tee off on the first hole probably ain't a good idea that's the way i look at it yeah that's actually that's actually a great 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 point i actually i remember my first race and like i just remember going completely medicine hat i remember it well you're riding old judge weren't you Judge, yeah, yeah, I rode that horse yeah. almost every single race that year. He was just my, he was my, uh, my watcher. I don't know how you say it. He was my uh, was that safety the same, net. Did, did they call him Clipper? No, Clipper, oh. Clipper. They called Moose. He was the one with the Moose. big head. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's the horse. Yeah, I, I rode Judge too, um, but I rode Clipper. I thought it might have been the same horse, but a good old campaigner for you there. And uh, I remember seeing Dayton. Where's your? Uh, where's your glasses or your goggles he said i don't need them and then i, I saw you towards the outside fence and after the race he said yeah i guess i need them <laughs> I'll yeah. Never forget that. <laughs> yeah i i uh i i just remember being so nervous and then everybody's trying to talk to me and i just you know just starts to hit like you know like i knew before i just knew just that day because it was father's day for dad and and uh um i don't know what if he lost an, a guy or what happened, but anyways, I, I was going to be on, I was actually kind of thinking I would ride the start of that season, but he, you know, he's pretty tough wagon. So uh, it's kind of naive yeah. for me to think that. And, and I didn't get the shot. And then all of a sudden I get to go in in medicine hat. And, and I just remember being so nervous, just thinking about it for the whole day. And then all of a sudden those emotions set in, like it's actually happening. And, and I was in great hands with judge and, and uh, like that horse just, he, he goes up your speed, just stops at the top or, or continues at a slow trot, turn the top barrel, come like, he lets you get your stirrups. He asks you if you're okay. He's, you know, he's just, just a, a bomb proof horse. So he's, he's yeah. He checks on you every now and then looks back, make sure you're still in the saddle. Yeah. He's good. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar, works. my first race ever was in Grand Prairie in 91 and uh, for Terry vegan. And uh, I was riding a horse named Holly. That was owned by, I think it was either Huey Sinclair or Dave Lewis. Uh, 
and same type of horse as Judge. It's just kind of funny that you mentioned this, but uh, and I remember going out there with my goggles down because I didn't. I figured I'd have my hands full anyways in the race to actually pull him down. So I went out there, and your grandpa was on the four barrel. We were on three. He was hooked. Your grandpa second out there. But and I remember uh, he went way across the chalk line on his practice turn, and I saw that, and it scared the hell out of me. But uh, anyways, uh, I remember telling Jimmy to that after I said, "Boy, Kelly sure came wide," and he goes. You don't ever need to worry about Kelly. <laughs> That's what he said. So, <laughs> oh, funny what you remember. On the topic of, of the, these special types of horses, um, who were some of the best horses that you rode throughout your career? Boy, you never forget a good one. You know, uh, Ronnie David, I had uh, a lot of good horses. He had a horse named uh, Denny was his name. Oh, he was a Cadillac, just the right size. He was perfect. Uh, he also had one there called Dude. Uh, when I started, he was old. I remember Lyle Pambram always wore a wore a spur, <laughs> and uh, I think he hit that horse with a spur, and he went to bucking on him actually. And that person never bucked. <laughs> Lyle was used to riding all those ranklings sometimes, so he had a he had a spur in one. I think his. Uh, right foot he, he hit that horse at one time with that little spur and he didn't like it but anyways uh i always had good horses for ronnie i always had good horses for jimmy a lot of them we broke you know right there at the farm uh for jimmy a horse called mr kerr uh neil walshenbaugh i rode lots of good ones for him uh one in particular that i was in the final heat in calgary with a lot of times was a little horse named shorty uh he had one little quirk to him was uh about the time you're ready to throw the stove, he'd whack you in the back with his head and a couple of times just about shoved me into the stove rack. But other than that, um, Jeff Watts, a fellow outrider, he bought a little horse named Antler Lake that Jimmy ended up using. Uh, he was a great little horse. Um, and then, uh, you know, you don't forget the ones that you rode when, you know, you won the big shows. Uh, Luke Turnier had a horse named Spoiler uh, that... You know, if you asked me, uh, if you wanted to go into any kind of a heat, uh, who would you take at that time? And it would have been him. Uh, wouldn't matter if you were behind or in front. He just, you know, was honest as the day is long. And, uh, you know, any good horse, a good horse for us is one that you have confidence in. You know, that when they lead them over, you're grinning because, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it a day off, but that's who you want. And you've had horses like that, I'm sure any guy that's ever out rode felt like that. And the last little horse that really comes to my mind is that uh, little black horse of uh, Chance Vegans named uh, Coco. I don't know if you've ridden him yet or not. What's his name, not, sorry? His name's Coco. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That little black horse. Uh, he'll buck you off in the spring when you start galloping him. He just feels so good. But uh, he can be a, uh, a bit of a rambunctious thing behind you know when you ride him up that chute to uh from Pinocchio from the barns to the track if you ride him back he'll buck you off on the way back because he doesn't like cows you got to go through the bucking horses and stuff but and the cattle but uh you get him on that racetrack and uh I think you could hold the you could hold the lead team with both hands and he'd just stand there and just one of the coolest horses I ever rode so you know and there's been a lot of good ones in between so pretty lucky uh those horses are just like machines uh, especially the good ones uh that's what kept an old guy like me going for the last few years i think 
Hey, hey, what what was that? Uh, you'll know what I'm talking about, and I don't want to butcher it. What was that Calgary? Uh, it's it's the it's in the video of you doing the Calgary Stampede. Uh, it's for the equine outfit of excellence. Um, you know what quote I'm talking about? The way you said it, I don't want to butcher it. Well, so, yeah, all, all I said is uh, you know you'll forget a lot of people in this world long before you'll ever forget a good horse. Yes, and uh, I can tell you that. I never heard that from anybody that was come from me, but uh, we were just talking when that guy was interviewing me and that just kind of came out, you know, and for me, for a guy like me and and others like it, I mean, uh, they never forget those good horses. Like you never forget secretariat. You, you know, big Ben, the, the jumping horse, you know, you, you never forget those horses. And if you hang around the coffee shops like I did when I was a kid, they always talked about the horses. They talked about old Blondie that Tom Dorchester had, which is a mare back in the 40s or 50s. And, uh, you know, the some of the uh, big outfits that your grandpa had, you know, with, with uh, you know, Bobby and uh, Ralph, Ralph and Bobby, the gray horse Ralph and Bobby. And, you know, everybody talks about those. And if you're ever with a bunch of old wagon guys and you talk about a certain point in time, within the first minute of talking about it it always ends up yeah that's when i had that big outfit with you know ralph and bobby and seven up and you know whoever right (laughs) yeah yeah it's it always comes back to the horses so that's true yeah that uh, i i just want to tell a little little story um about that so you know just to just to preface it you know when you're in calgary like it's just that part of the season is the whole just the whole aura changes, just the attitude changes, the the atmosphere, just everybody knows it's game time. And it's kind of like our Stanley cup playoffs, right? Like it's in the middle of the season. I realize that, but um, it, it's, it's the big show of the year. It's the time to shine. And, and everybody kind of knows that. And everybody gets fired up about it. The horses, the, the barn hands, the, the drivers, the outriders. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, they do that thing where they have the, uh, what's it called the hel- the helicopter the uh, army helicopter and they do the o canada and they fly around the canadian flag and they play yep. rock and roll music and that kind of stuff and and uh just before the races were airing they do the before the demo run they aired this uh equine uh excellence video um that that you and uh, my dad and dorchester and glass and and a handful of guys were a part of and uh i remember i'm sitting at that fence uh, where the we come out of the infield um, and, and we're standing and watching the big screen, me and Cole Somerville, and, and we're just watching it, watching it. And then uh, here you come on and you say, you'll forget a lot of good people in this world before you ever forget a good horse. And then Cole Somerville just turns and looks at me and says, I just fucking love when Eddie says that. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just kind of a funny, <laughs> funny moment, you know. For, like for anybody just, that's, yeah, for anybody that's seen that video, the the one that, that cranks me up is when Troy Dorchester you know, I was talking about his horses and family uh, and then tears come to his eyes and he kind of, and then he looks up, you know, with kind of a mean look on his face and that's just to prevent himself from crying. And uh, to me, when every time I saw that, that just fired me right up too. So it's a good video. Yeah. It's a hell of a video. It gives, just gives you goosebumps. And, and th- you know, that kind of, uh, 
mentality uh, actually kind of helped me as like a younger guy. Cause when you're, you're younger, you don't really appreciate th- uh, those types of horses that you come across. And, and when you're older, the, the more time you spend with them, uh, I just feel like you, you kind of understand uh, which ones are the, are the special ones and, and the ones that touch your heart. I mean, they're all, they're all awesome. Don't yeah. get me wrong, but um, that attitude uh, uh, really made a shift for me for sure. There's been so many good ones. Uh, you know, and I suppose uh, we're not at the horse award yet, but there's just been so many good horses come by. Some that didn't have a chance unless, you know, the wagon guys got them. You know, they were they were on a one-way trip to somewhere and never coming back type thing, you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so many of those horses have turned out to be champions, have turned out to just get a whole new lease on life. And uh, it's just incredible. And you get attached to them. I mean... Everybody that's ever been in chuck wagon racing, whether you're a driver or an outrider, uh, I'll tell you, if you're not a horse lover, you know, then you're just wasting your time. Like, there's no sense even showing up uh, because, mm-hmm. of, you know, that's where it all starts. And every guy without fail that I've ever met that has ever been a chuck wagon racer, uh, outrider, barn hand, uh, sponsor, without fail or horse lover. They just think they're the coolest thing going. And, and I agree with them. Why don't we jump into that? Um, you know, there's this thing called the, I've mentioned it a handful of times and you have as well, the, uh, equine outfit of excellence award. And, uh, to my understanding, you were a huge part, if not the only part in, in putting that, uh, award forward. Um, and, and also a big part of, you know, the reason we started this podcast was to highlight the equine athletes and, and the drivers and, and just really uh, let people in on the, the skill of, of what's going on behind the scenes, because I don't think most people understand. So um, where did that award start and uh, maybe kind of where is it today? The idea for the award came, you know, from years of just listening to everybody talk about the horses, but then. I was up uh, one spring at Neil Walshenbaugh's Galpin Horses, and then we took an outfit over to Norm Cuthbertson's place in Elkhart, and uh, they had a plaque on the wall of their top new horse every year. And I thought that was really cool. I looked at that. And I remember talking to my brother that, that fall going, you know, we gotta, we should come up with something for these horses to recognize them. And, uh, so we, we put a format together and we, argued back and forth on the format and you know we are devil's advocate and and so we come up with a format that made it manageable and recognized the best which uh, for the people that don't know is every night that we run on the tour uh, the top five I'd get their the horses from the top five guys and if you were first that night your horse all your horses got five points and if you're fifth all your voice horses get one point so that were on that night. So, and then at the end of the year, you, you it's like an all-star team with uh, hockey, you know, goalie and two defensemen and three forwards. We had a every corner of the wagon and two outriding horses. And so that's kind of how it started. And I had to present it to the board and, you know, everybody was kind of spectacle or skeptical, uh, whatever that word is, <laughs> um, about <laughs> it because, because uh, well, who's going to look after it? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? And I said, I will. Well, they weren't used to an outrider actually stepping up and doing stuff like that. <laughs> I said, so just trust me. Right. We did it. I remember that first year, which was 2005, uh, me going around on my little bike, my little motorbike. 
after the races every night and on my book and I'm writing down all these and really nobody knew what it was all about. And uh, that, if you remember that's the year they did those half mile hell uh, series on ale outdoor life there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't know we were just going to have a horse award at the end of the year. And, and I said to the guy about halfway through the year, I said, Hey, do you think we could do a little video presentation about these horses? And he thought it was a good idea. And as it turned out, the director of the show lived three doors down from me in Calgary. I met him in Grand Prairie. But I, uh, <laughs> we've, I'd lived there eight years and, and found out that uh, he lived three doors down from me. So anyways, I'd go over there before the banquet. And we got these six videos. And uh, I thought, you know, if we can do a splash like this, this thing will really catch fire. And, uh, and it did. Long story short, it did. And the drivers realized what it was all about. Uh, my company, Import Tool, uh, sponsored it. So each driver at that time got $500, and we did up a nice picture that my brother did up. And we'd write bios on the horses themselves, where they came from, you know, what their previous life was, which was most of them were all on the racetrack, and, you know, how they did. And, and, and you know, and just you get to know the horse as an individual. And basically the, the response of it from the chuck wagon people were, was exactly what I hoped it would be. It was, they want to win those and they're proud of their horses when they do. And what I learned, which I guess I already knew, but it, uh, every one of these horses has a history, has a past. Some never made anything on the racetrack, uh, but they found their niche with the chuck wagon. Some made a million dollars on the racetrack, but, uh, you know, and, uh, but they get old too at the racetrack and then they find out they got another 10 or 12 years uh, with us. So, it's just so cool. One of those horses, uh, if we're talking specific, you know, you've driven the horse. Uh, Forever Grand is his name, Grandy, that you guys mm-hmm. saw off Grand Profit, you know, and you've driven that little horse. Is he still alive, David? I'm not sure. Uh, he left our place, and then I'm not sure where he went. I mean, I would doubt he's still alive. Maybe he's not. I mean, geez, when we got him, he must have been 14 maybe 15 or something so then and it almost kind of seemed like when grandpa bought him it was almost right at his peak or just after so you know grandpa spent like what was it like ninety eight thousand dollars or something on the horse at a sale at, at grand profit sale it was 92 and he bought his partner prince but what's ironic about those two horses prince and and forever grand was prince finished second in the canadian or the queen's plate and Grandy finished third the same year <laughs> in the, you know, Canada's most prestigious race. Those two horses finished two, second and third, and they both ended up being chuck wagon horse. That Prince was a, was a hell of a horse too. Um, he was, he was great, big, uh, just a giant. He was, he was kind of like a liver chestnut color, uh, a little bit darker. And uh, um, yeah, just, just an awesome horse. He was on the left lead and Granny was on the right lead. And, and those two were kind of, Grant's, uh, you know, pride and joy for sure. Grant Profit won a lot of shows with that lead team. And, uh, you know, they were awesome. So there's two that were, you know, Hollywood horses. But at the same time, when they got too old for the track, you know, they, they didn't have much of a future. They were both geldings. So there's no stud value for them. And, and you know, even though Grandy made over a million dollars on the racetrack, you look him up, Forever Grand is his name. You know, he still needed a place to go when his playing days were over. Well, you guys had him, uh, you know, and he's well into his 20s. The last time I heard he was still alive, but he 
God, he's got to be 25 or more now. Uh, and, you know, when you started driving him, you drove him, didn't you? Well, I see when, when they got him, he was like supposed to be the horse that was going to help grandpa win uh, Calgary. I don't think he ever did win with them uh, after he had already won in 2010 and 11. And then uh, these were supposed to be the bunch that would, you know, push him through to one last championship. And then he could kind of ride off in the sunset. He never got it done. But uh, these were supposed to be the horse. So I wasn't really driving them a, a bunch in the races, um, but I was driving them, you know, a handful of times in the mornings and stuff. They, they never really let me, and, and for good reason, they never let oh, me. Oh, you know go. what? I, sorry, I confused them with another great horse that your grandpa had. Oh, Reggie. That's, <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah, that's who I was going to bring up. Yeah, like, um, anyways, uh, the, those types, they didn't let me drive them too much and, until I got a lot better with my hands. And, and, and you know, you're, it's, it's a lot to have four horses, uh, you know, you're attached to both sides of the bit on four different horses and, and they're different parts of the wagon. They're going different directions. You're steering them. So you got to have soft hands sometimes and, and you got to, uh, you know, take control of the bit others and, and uh, you don't ever really want to have hard hands, uh, no matter what anybody says. But anyways, no. um, they didn't let me touch those. And, but they did, like you said, let me drive. Uh, I drove Reggie who grandpa got as a three-year-old and who's still alive. I know that that horse would never leave the farm. No, no That's matter what. I'm thinking of more so than Grandy. Uh, Reggie. Yeah. He, he, I drove him and he was actually not that easy to drive. He would always come in uh, dead sideways. He wouldn't keep the tugs tight and he's a right leader, right? Which is the quarterback of the outfit more or less. So, uh, and then he would just kind of make a roundhouse turn. Like he wouldn't really like flop straight back, but uh, the one thing about it is it didn't matter what I was doing with the lines. Reggie was going where Reggie was going. Cause he had done it a thousand times before. So <laughs> it, he was quite a horse to, you know, start out with and, and uh, whatnot, because it didn't matter if I was, uh, you know, headed toward the shoots or whatever. Reggie just did the same thing every single time. And then once I got, you know, a little bit better, then you start to figure out the little quirks of the horse. And, and uh, you know, he taught me a lot that way too, because um, you, once you start to, to get a little bit better, you figure out the quirks and you start to understand that, oh, okay, maybe I should start doing this with the other horses. And, and uh, you know, the little things that I would do to improve that horse, um, you know, then I started to think about other things I could do with other horses. And, and uh, it's the same as outriding. You really got to yeah. uh, figure out how you can make the horse the best the horse can be. And that's your whole job, right? That's right. And, uh, you know, it's just funny when we're talking about these horses, I hope, you know, the people that are listening, <laughs> you know, it, uh, these horses are just like, you know, they're just part of your crew. They're, they're just like people sitting at the, at the dinner table. You know, they're, we talk about them like they are people sometimes. And uh, this, this uh, Reggie horse that Dave was talking about, Cass, you might not even know this, but uh, Kelly, the story with, cause he won our horse award and it was so cool. Uh, the story on him, he was a nervous little three-year-old. I think Kelly said he was skinny maiden. He'd never won a race on the racetrack. Uh, and Kelly yep. bought him and he was just nervous and skinny. And he'd just pace that box stall. I think your grandpa was saying. Um, and so they took him home and, you know, looked after him and turned him out and filled him full of feed and got him broke. And, well, I can't tell you how many, stampedes your grandpa won with that or how many world titles he won with that horse deb and reggie i think was the lead team um mm -hmm. but just you know what an incredible horse and, and you know he didn't have a future at three years old unless you know a chuck wagon driver bought him 
he took him home and, and give him another chance because he wasn't doing anything at the racetrack. And so you, here, you, here, here we're talking about a horse, uh, Forever Grand, that made a million dollars on the track. And we're talking about Reggie, you know, that couldn't even pay his own oat bill. And they're both champions. Isn't, like, isn't that, that's the coolest thing about this whole award, I think, is they can come from anywhere. Well, I, I tell people that all the time, like, you know, when you're going shopping for horses or, or say somebody asks you, well, what makes a good horse, blah, 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 when you're getting new ones. And, and the truth is, it's, it's kind of like a lottery ticket. I mean, of course, athleticism does help. Uh, but, you know, how do you know? It's, 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 like, it's like going from football, uh, like it being an offensive lineman or something, uh, to being a, a sprinter. You know what I mean? Like, like there's, a, yeah. there's a whole different contrast to the sport because you're pulling the wagon. Not to mention there's so many different ways to be effective, like uh, uh, being a right leader, being the one who leads the outfit. You're not necessarily making the outfit uh, uh, the fastest by pulling it or, or running the fastest. Uh, that would be more the wheel team. Uh, but the right leader sets up your whole turn and it, and it, and it just really uh, starts your whole race and, and make sure you, you get out of the barrels uh, clean. As long as you have a good right leader, you can almost do anything in my mind. So, um, you yeah. know, there's different ways they can be effective too. So I think that's kind of part of the reason why, you know, you can go from a horse like Granny to a horse like Reggie. And you're right. Reggie was an absolute nothing on the track. His only saving grace uh, was that he was dead sound. He was, he was, he had no issues. A lot of these horses that we get have issues when they uh, come from the track uh, because they're, you know, run at a young age and, and their, their, their bones are still growing and, you know, everybody knows the, the story. So anyways, um, yeah. he was dead sound and, and uh, grandpa had him for, geez, I raced Reggie his last year. And I think my cousin tough did too. Uh, he was, you know, 20 something years old, like, like early twenties, obviously, but uh, it just from, from three to 20, he raced like 17 years. And you know what, what the funny thing is, is you said he was a nervous horse. We had him in the box stall trimming his feet uh, two months ago. And that horse is still pacing nonstop back and forth. Just stall dance. <laughs> like yeah. And no, he's and like, love you know, and, and you know, for the people that haven't really been around they you can never, in my opinion, anyways, and, you know, listening to the horseman and just being what I've seen, you can never get a horse to do anything he doesn't want to do. Uh, that he isn't going to be, he's never going to be as good at it, you know. And you hear mm -hmm. you got an old campaigner like that, that just absolutely loves what he does, you know. And you can see it. You can see it in their eyes. You can see it when, you know, when they get left behind. If they're not going that night, some of them throw a wreck, you know, because they, they can't believe you're not using them that night. And, uh, it's it's so cool to see these horses and just how much personality and how much heart and try they got. It's, it's just amazing. You know, there's so many good stories, Dayton, uh, seeing how we're talking about it. As you can tell, I'm kind of passionate about it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like over the years of the horses that have won, some that didn't quite make it. John Walters has had some great stories. He's won a few. He had mm -hmm. uh, one horse named Woody that uh, he bought out of the slaughterhouse, actually. Uh, I don't know, five, six hundred dollars, something like that. Uh, he uh, he had bad ulcers and he had a bad front end. And uh, one vet told him to put him down because of these ulcers, and they they got a second opinion. And this is before the horse was even broke, and they got him on some therapy. And anyways, he ended up being a champion at the Calgary Stampede on the wheel. And then uh, he's had another one that I don't think that horse. Uh, beat a horse on the racetrack he ran seven times 
that gray horse, right leader his, you know the horse. Uh, I'm just, uh, uh, yeah, I, I know. One. I know he's good one, you know, he's been stealing all the rails. Jeez, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name right now. Uh, anyways, uh, I'll think of it. And Not uh, Dancer, is it? Dancer, Dancer, yeah, Dancer. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he got bought out of Vancouver, and the best he ever finished was seventh. So you could tell how many horses were in the race by where he finished, because I don't think he beat a horse in seven starts. And uh, yeah. I think he's won three of these horse awards between two, the Tour and Calgary on the right lead. And uh, you know that horse was nothing on the racetrack. But it could be little things like John told me that he hates being tied up that horse. He hates being confined. Well. Mm -hmm. You know, with the chuck wagons, we, uh, you know, they have to be tied up at some point. But uh, for the most part, he left them out, you know, build a little pen for him and, and out. He's happy and, and it turns out he can run as hard as any horse that he's got. So it might have been, it's not necessarily always physical. A lot of times it's mental, you know. And what amazes me, and I was never a chuck wagon driver myself, but it amazes me the horsemanship that, uh, that you have to have to, you know, to be a, a good chuck wagon racer, it's not all about if you're the best driver, it's feeding programs and, and trying to keep those horses happy. And a lot of times you have, just have to listen to the horse and figure it out and, you know, uh, find out what makes that horse happy and they'll perform for you. Well, to, to your point, I would say that there's actually quite a few guys. Um, I don't really want to name names or anything, but uh, we're talking Calgary Stampede, world champions, uh, you know, some of the best in the sport. And to my opinion, they, nece they weren't necessarily uh, outstanding drivers. I mean, you have to be a, a pretty good driver, at least know what you're doing uh, to get to that you know, type of a pedigree, but, um, as far as, you know, cold hearted drivers, like, uh, like barrel skinners, like, you know, John stone and Reg Johnstone, my grandpa, Luke Turnier, like those types of guys, um, these guys couldn't, couldn't hold a feather to their cap, no pun intended. Um, but they were such elite horsemen that they could, you know, amass, uh, many championships and, 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 and stay competitive, uh, for many, many years. So, um, it, it, there's certainly, uh, more than one way to do it. And I will say that in today's world, I think that being a horseman, uh, uh, figuring out your horses, getting them to, uh, you know, getting more out of them, that that's the whole key, right. Is getting more out of the horse, getting the most potential out of them, uh, is probably, I don't know, 70, 80% of the game. I think it's quite similar to, to say like barrel racing or something where, uh, the horsepower is, is such a huge part of it now where the driving just isn't much of a factor because of the way the sports evolve with the softer barrels and, and whatnot. So, um, good horsemen certainly, certainly thrive. And, and John Walters is actually uh, one of them uh, that I admire a lot. You know, Cowboy John, everybody calls him. Uh, you know, I, I don't know where he learned everything. He was a, he was a roughie, um, you know, uh, road Bronx or barebacks. I just forget, but um, either way, was, I, mean, I think I, he was I, an all around, spent... all around. He could calf rope, he could team rope. He, he rode in saddle Bronx, okay. you know, and he just decided you know, in his forties to get, a, to be a chuck wagon racer, which is crazy. And, and, you know, you look how well he's done. It's pretty impressive. And, but the first thing he is, is a horseman first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I picked up uh, uh, hundreds of things from him. He kind of started me out, out riding. I don't want to, you know, get too far into that or get off track here, but um, 
you know, I, I spent quite a few hours uh, in the barn with John and, and uh, you know, I would just pick up on little things he was doing. And one time I went out in spring training and he just showed me stuff that a guy like even my grandpa had been doing it for uh, 50 years total um, stuff that, that uh, I never seen him do just, just little things, uh, you know, so uh, to be the world's best horseman, you'd have to be, you know, 200 years old. I think you'd have to, 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 to everything. Um, there's just so much to learn. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, again, it just, it's just a huge, huge part of our sport. I, I mean, I couldn't just, I couldn't stress that enough. My, my dad always said, it's what you, it's what you learn after you know it all that really matters. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> yeah. got, That's a good that way to put it. Yeah. Hey, what about, uh, what about some of the best outfits uh, that you come across in your career? I mean, 20 or yeah, 29 years. Is that it? I mean, surely you've seen a lot of them. Yeah. Um, I'm only going to go back in, in my time because I know there was some honking outfits in the seventies and all that mm -hmm. best outfit I ever saw up till I started was Dave Lewis in 1982. I mean, that was incredible. And, and it was funny. Mm -hmm. I was 10 years old and I remember the two of the horses anyways, Freddie and Greyhawk, <laughs> but they were incredible. But during my, my tenure, since I guess 1991, Dallas Dorchester in the early nineties, uh, when he won Calgary in 91, that was an incredible outfit. He had a lead team on there named Brandy and Seesaw. They were awesome. And then, you know, as the decade kind of went on, George Norman had some big outfits. Tommy Glass had some big outfits. And uh, and then, you know, in 93, Richard Cosgrave, he showed up to Calgary with, uh, uh, it was a, kind of the unveiling of the big lead team that he had, which was. Uh, Is that the team that Tommy, Tommy? bought? Tom, Tommy ended up buying them, yeah. And then uh, it was uh, Faith and Duddy. That was her name, excuse me. Faith and Duddy. Mm. And then Tommy ended up winning Calgary to, in 94, right after you know, Richard sadly passed away in 93. But uh, Richard won the aggregate that year, and I think he won about three or four day monies. Calgary, they were, what an incredible bunch of horses that were. Uh, you know, moving on a little bit, I mean, Buddy Benzmiller had some big outfits, George Norman, like you said, George already, but, uh, you know, and then your your dad in the late 90s there when he had, uh, you know, Ralph and Bobby and them when he went on that run, uh, you know, just incredible, especially the first couple of years of, the, of his five wins, I think, Calgary's he had with him. They were, mm -hmm. they were incredible. But one of the one of the best outfits I ever saw, and people are I'm sure will type in and argue with me on this one, but you know Huey Sinclair won four Calgarys, and that was an incredible outfit he had. But I think he had a better one in the mid '90s. Uh, you know he didn't win Calgary with him, but they seemed to set a track record everywhere we went. And uh, one race in particular, I remember is. When, you're, when your grandpa won the stampede off the four barrel in uh, 1997, I think, you know, beautiful run. He gets out there, takes the rail, wins, wins the race, wins the 100,000 or the 50, I guess, at that time. Uh, Huey Sinclair did the same thing in the seventh heat and went 114 flat. And I think your grandpa was 115 something. <laughs> so Huey don't run him by over a second. It was, I remember riding for Huey and all four of us outriders were ahead of the second place outfit and we didn't know if any of us made it, you know, you know he was just gone, you know, so he had uh, some incredible outfits. Uh, 
my first, you know, Neil Walshenbaugh had some big time outfits, especially off the one barrel. I think the one year he won first seven day monies or seven times he had the one barrel, he had six day monies or something like that. It's crazy. And then uh, wow. Luke Turnier, you know, yep. like for, for me, of an outfit that I actually wrote for consistently, Luke Turnier in 05 and 07. Uh, mm-hmm. The second year, Luke won Calgary in 07. Uh, he hooked uh, he hooked that outfit eight times. And they got better the more you hooked them. And uh, he got four day monies, two seconds and two thirds. <laughs> and, he, and he never trailed. He was in front all eight times. And, uh, you know, like that just doesn't happen. That's, uh, you know, what a what a performance that was. The problem is as good as his uh, good outfit was, his second outfit, because they'd been sitting in the barn for so long, were that bad. <laughs> you know, they were just flat. Yeah. But, so, but he still won the aggregate that year. Uh, and, uh, you know, what an incredible. And then, you know, you move up to kind of more recent times that, you know, uh, that outfit that Kirk Sutherland had with uh, Cougar and Chief on the lead, and he had Colonel, the gray horse on the wheel. Uh, when they first started getting good, I think they won seven day monies in a row or something crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just absolutely incredible outfits. And then it's been a, a clinic for the last few years with what Kirk Benzmiller's doing. You know, and I can't name all of his horses because he, he just keeps reloading every year. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I've, I've missed some for sure. Jerry Bremner, Jason Glass had some big outfits. Tommy Glass had some big outfits. Um, you know, just uh, those are the ones that you you remember. And you just wish that those horses could be around forever because uh, it'd sure be interesting if you could ever stack them up. Uh, Norm Cuthbertson had some big outfits. He won, I think, five trucks in three years or something there in the you know, mid-90s kind of thing. No doubt. It's kind of funny like that there's, you know, it seems like every maybe year or, or, or so there's maybe one to say three outfits that are, you know, those, those special type outfits kind of thing. And, and it kind of seems like guys like Kurt Benzmiller, my grandpa, uh, even glass, uh, those types of guys always have, uh, those outfits fairly consistently every you know maybe one or two every decade or something those real real hot outfits that are that are real tough to beat um and and my dad always said that um no matter who you are you always if you race long enough you always get one of those outfits you always get one of those outfits that that's the hot shit that's the uh, nobody can touch that kind of thing that's the 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 outfit that you can really do something with so um you know i i guess uh it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of just special thinking and, and watching about, um, you know, all those uh, just great teams. And, Cause that's really what they are, right. They just, they start to gel together and they start to uh, know each other and, and uh, they work off of one another and then ultimately start feeding off one another. You know, like I, I just always think of back of my grandpa and dad's horse. Cause I, you know, it's the ones I've been around uh, as much, but uh, you know, like, uh, like we were talking about earlier, like Deb, was the left leader and Reggie was the right leader. And, uh, you know, those two would, would feed off each other. They were the perfect match because uh, of, of how they worked uh, uh, going to the top barrel and whatnot. So um, it's, it, it sh- certainly shouldn't go unnoticed uh, uh, how much of a team these, these great outfits are. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, you're, you, you mentioned, you know, the ones that you're probably closer to. I remember that lead team of Luke. 
you know, Luke Turnage, but he'll, you know, he'll probably brag about the left wheeler as much as he would the right leader. Um, you know, it was Port and Smoothie was his lead team. Uh, and I remember in the, I think it was the second time we won it. Uh, I was holding leaders for Luke and I, I missed the cross check on the right side, uh, the right leader when he pulled in and we got a quick horn and uh, I don't think I ever did have a hold of him. And uh, it didn't seem to matter. He just stood there. And then when the horn went, he got shot out of a cannon. So <laughs> I don't think I told him that, but if he's listening to this, he'll know it now, but that was 13 years ago. He's probably forgiven me by now, but just an incredible horse. I mean, just absolutely incredible. What about the, like, I don't know if this was the same outfit, but what about uh, Fling? Was he, was he on one of those dominant outfits? I thought he was. I knew he was a really, no. really nice horse. He's no, Oh no, he, he came after that. Uh, he might've been around, you know, in 07, but that week we outrode. Actually, Logan Gorst out rode. Uh, I don't think we run him in the final heat that year, but we ran him during the week. And uh, he was a wagon horse that just hadn't quite, you know, just couldn't crack Luke's top two outfits at that time, if I remember right. And uh, so we outrode him. And then the next year, uh, Luke started driving him again. And I think he uh, ended up being on his short barrel outfits. And uh, he won a few day monies with him up there. And we always knew that we could go and get him if we were short and out riding horses. Now, he was a good one too, but he wasn't on. He wasn't on the big ones. Kirk ended up with him, and I think Roy Romano. Ended yeah, up well, that's last the, year. Yeah, he did. He, yeah, he's still around, and that's why I asked because I I drove him for a handful of races too, uh, and I know you know he was uh, purchased for a, a hefty sum uh, from what I heard. Anyways, I never asked the actual details, <laughs> but um, he's a he's a heck of a horse. That's why I was wondering. I thought he was the one on those championship outfits, but I guess he wasn't. Eh? But anyways, just a yeah, that was a spectacular horse. I mean, I've driven a handful of really really nice right leaders, uh, you know, from grandpas and dads and stuff and, and i'm talking horses that you know won calgary and and uh the works and uh been around you know uh, a long time and that one has been uh one of the best ones if not you know probably top two top three that i've ever driven and he was just something else i don't know maybe got better as he went on but um you know when i got him or when i drove him he was a bit older so necessarily the, the, the run wasn't there or anything but geez just smooth as butter to drive like just automatic does what you need straight straight when you point him like he's a type of horse that that uh you know seriously anybody could drive so um anyways there's uh <laughs> there's enough horses yeah. that can go on for hours and hours <laughs> talk about him forever yeah that's the, the best part about this sport. yeah well what about uh the you know say let's call it the inside scoop um you know that's kind of what i think that this podcast does uh for a lot of people and and uh you know that's kind of also something i think the the your award does um is is let people in on the the drama and the story and the the minor details um of the horses and and uh everything that's going on um would you mind expanding on that maybe like uh kind of the the importance of of telling those stories and and kind of what that means to you yeah i uh you know the you know the cool thing about the shows that we go to in calgary stampede and you know you get people down there that you know might just like you say you know they just watch the wagons and they've never really had the inside track or been able to come and see what you know the wagon people actually do behind the scenes and 
you know, without fail, you get them back there to the barn area, um, you know, and they get to pet the horses and they got their granddaughter there and she gets to feed them a carrot and, and just, you know, a lot of, I've had so many people say, I had no idea what actually went on back here. And this is so cool and how cool these horses and how magnificent they are and how much work it takes. You know, you see the, the hired girls and the hired uh, men and, and everybody in there working and, and the horses are getting looked after first long before anybody eats and uh, just the care and attention to detail and everything that goes into it. Uh, you know, I just, I've been in it for a lot of years, but I've never been a driver myself necessarily, but I have so much respect for, you know, the people that actually step up and, and become a, a wagon driver because it's not just the driver it's their, it's their families and, and barn help and everybody just, you know, has a sole focus and that's basically looking after those horses. And, uh, you know, when, when people from the outside actually see it, uh, you know, a lot of them, maybe if they weren't sure, uh, they saw something happen on the track or whatever, they might've had a misconception. They come back there and, you know, I can't tell you how many people we've changed their minds about. And it doesn't seem to matter which camp you go to. Uh, the story is pretty well the same. So I think anytime you can get the behind the scenes look, uh, you know, documentaries, if you ever watch a bunch of those, just seeing the inside and you create instant fans that way. Uh, I think our guys do a great job of uh, being open, you know, and showing people what, what the sport's actually really all about. And you've met so many people that, you know, have nothing to do with this type of lifestyle and, and you can expose them to it and they just have a whole new appreciation to the history and the tradition and all the miles and all the sweat, blood and tears that everybody has put into year after year and years before our generation uh, to keep this thing going. And uh, it's truly uh, a unique thing around the world uh, built on history and tradition and family. And you can buy a lot of things, but you cannot buy history and tradition you can't buy it you have to earn it and i think our sport's done a great job of that i'm just really hopeful moving ahead that you know decisions and stuff with our sport moving ahead that they consider the history and tradition and how far it's come a part of me wonders like if we could reach a larger fan base if we you know talked more about the horses we talk a lot about the drivers but just sitting here the past I guess hour and a half listening to you and Dayton talk it reminded me of a message that we got on social media from someone down in California uh saying that a horse they'd watched on the racetrack is now racing up here and did we have information on that horse like that almost makes me wonder, is that something we should do more? Should we talk about it more? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think so, Cass. Uh, you know, anytime, in my opinion, what, what really sells any sport is the superstars. Um, you know, not parody, like, you know, Michael Jordan's, Wayne Gretzky's, uh, go down the line, uh, Tiger Woods. It's superstars that, that create the interest in any sport and the biggest superstars that we have, you know, are, are the horses themselves. Um, even if you, you know, we have, we've had Kelly Sutherland's and Kurt Benzmiller's and Jason Glass and, and superstars. Absolutely. But when you interview those guys, they talk about their horses a lot of the time, you know, uh, how proud they are of their horses. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a team effort between horse and man and that's what horsemanship's all about. Uh, but I think if the people actually knew, that, oh, 
Kelly or Dayton or Jason's driving that horse. Wasn't he the champion last year? Or isn't that one of his top horses? And you get to know the horses themselves. I think it creates a whole new, uh, you know, interest level uh, from the fans. I know, like, I'm a big fan of the, of the horse, I follow horse racing, you know, a lot, but I also enjoy watching a good bucking horse. And I know that when, for example, graded coconut, the Calgary, great horse of the Calgary Stampede, you know, when he was bucking, I was there, you know, if I could be there, I wanted to watch that horse buck. It was only for eight seconds, but I was still there. You know, you couldn't wait to, to watch it because he was so good at what he did and he loved what he did. And, you know, that's, uh, like I say, these horses, uh, the superstars, I'll guarantee you, every single one of them loves what they do. They can't wait to get out there. And people can identify with the horses themselves. That's a great point. That's actually like, you know, as far as superstars do sell a sport. I mean, we like for me, I'm an MMA fan, you know, Conor McGregor, regardless how you feel about him. Uh, certainly transcended that sport. I mean, they went from next to nothing to, you know, an international, uh, um, like, you know, they're on ESPN and TSN and whatever. They're, they become a, a major sport almost now. So, I mean, it would it's kind of fun to think about, uh, you know, maybe our sport could be similar to, you know, the jockey tracks, the flat races, uh, the Kentucky Derbies. Everybody knows American Pharaoh. Uh, California Chrome, uh, those types of horses. And, you know, maybe we're not on that scale, but uh, it certainly would be, I think everybody would have fun with it. Drivers, everybody involved, um, outriders, <laughs> moms, wives, barnhands, uh, you know, to, to, if it was tracked maybe in a deeper level, uh, um, you know, to, to, to how special these horses are, because you just, you really can't appreciate it unless they're your horses, you know, unless, uh, you know, and I know that as a driver, you, you just can't, uh, it, it's tough for other people to see. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And uh, I think more, you know, when you're doing stories, you know, if the news and all this stuff would just, you know, do, I, I suppose more things on the, horses themselves and the uh you know that's what we've tried to do with the horse award themselves um but you know we probably need more of that uh, it's just i don't know um I, I just think it creates a whole new interest uh for the fans in the sport if they instead of just seeing four horses in there they they can identify them as individuals uh a little bit it ain't gonna happen for the whole fan base as a whole but uh you know, NASCAR, I think they've made stars out of some of those drivers. Um, and that's probably what, uh, you know, we need to do with, with a lot of our drivers. And then when, when the drivers become superstars, the horses do as well. Uh, kind of a combination of the two, I think. You know, like obviously you're recognized as, as one of the most passionate guys uh, about the sport uh, with your pedigree, how long you've been involved, what you've done. Uh, and if they didn't know, certainly they know now we're <laughs> over an hour into this interview. So um, um, it's quite obvious, uh, uh, you know, how much you care about this sport and this heritage. So it, to me, you're a good guy to ask. You know, obviously there's been lots of stuff going on uh, for the past handful of years. Uh, we're kind of, you know, going down a, a bit of a, a correction, let's call it. Uh, uh, to me, the, the fields aren't the same. They're not as tough as they were. There's not as many outriders uh, maybe sitting on the fence as there used to be. Um, but, you know, also to, to counter that, uh, uh, we've had 
instances like this in the past before, not that I've been a, a part of, but you know, that my grandpa would tell me. So um, my question is, what is your take on where we're at right now as a sport and where we're headed? You know, I'm not as optimistic as I'd like to be uh, moving ahead. Um, <clears throat> however, you know, we are riding on the backs of, you know, a hundred years of history. So um, I'm hoping that that foundation is strong enough to, you know, to, to weather these tough times that we're in right now, you know, this COVID thing is really taking everyone for a loop. Uh, but as far as wagon racing itself, uh, you know, I wish, I wish people would see the good uh, instead of just focusing on the bad, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we've talked tonight about, Horses that had no future that ended up were still out in the field eating grass at 25 years old. And, you know, they were three years old when they were bought. You know, these are success stories. You know, uh, you don't see enough stories about horses like that. And there's a pile of them. Trust me, there's over seven or 800 horses on our tour. There's probably, you know, over a thousand. Um, most of them didn't have a great future. So the only time that sometimes we get some press is when you have an incident, an unfortunate incident uh, on the track or whatever. And uh, it seems like the, if you look in the world, the protesters, whether it's a pipeline protester or, or whatever, I mean, it, it seems like these people don't do anything except protest. You know, they need something to protest. And, uh, you know, we're, if they're working, how do they have time to be sitting there protesting what everyone else does? Um, you know, I, I will say that, uh, you know, the, everybody in this sport are horse lovers. Nobody likes to see a horse get hurt. That's for sure. But, you know, just anybody living their lives, you're going to get a scrape or two, uh, unless you live in a bubble and you don't do anything, but then we'd all end up on Dr. Phil because we'd all be 600 pounds or something like, you know, you can't, you can't protect everything from everything all the time. And, uh, you know, you do your best to, to limit that kind of stuff, but you know, the, the good far outweighs the bad, but I think the, the minority groups sometimes get to get a hold of it. And you know, what they say, it's not, it's not reality. Uh, they focus on perception and not reality, I think. And, and I just hope that, you know, we can survive, uh, you know, the next few years and get stronger and, uh, hopefully keep this thing going because I think it's a big part of the culture of Alberta. Um, you know, Calgary's known as Cowtown. We white hat everybody that comes to town. And uh, I think the chuck wagons are a big part of that because, you know, a lot of, a lot of places have agriculture. A lot of places have uh, rodeos and cattle shows and, and all that kind of stuff, but not very many of them have chuck wagon racing. You know, we've kind of laid claim to it and, you know, I've been to a lot of places. I was in Kentucky and I met a guy named John Secura there and he just couldn't wait. He says, one of these days I got to come out and see those chuck wagon races. We see that all, all over the place. So I hope, you know, with education, if we can educate, you know, our haters, the haters, we're never going to educate them, but maybe people that are on the fence, maybe we can tilt them our way a little bit by showing what everybody does, you know, and how, uh, how well these horses are looked after, how a lot of them, frankly, have been saved. You know, their lives were saved. And, uh, you know, these horses are not throwaways. They're living creatures that are a big part of all our families. You know, I just, I just wish that, the, you know, that the people, the naysayers or whatever, 
would just at least educate themselves on, uh, you know, before they form an opinion. But most protesters don't that I've seen. You know, there's some smart people out there, but just educate yourselves and then form an opinion. But at least try to be fair. Um, because I know a lot of the stuff we get from time to time, I don't even think is fair. I mean, they don't hear about, uh, I'm just using uh, your dad as an example. What was, uh, he had a big horse on, that had to be retired and he had to have surgery, never gonna run again, Art. Art. But he, yeah. you know, he spent the money to do an operation on him knowing he'll never run again, just so he could turn him out and retire him on the farm. You know, that's how much these horses mean to, you know, everybody's got stories like that. So they're the thought that we're just a bunch of butchers or, you know, that's a terrible word, but <laughs> just wish those people would educate themselves uh, and, and realize the good because uh, it is good. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, and just to elaborate on that, that art horse, I mean, it didn't start out uh, expecting to spend the money he did, but uh, it was something around like 50,000 to, to reconstruct his leg and to keep him healed and then to keep him at a clinic. And, and uh, it was like months on it. And, and, and uh, he actually just died. I, I said this on the podcast, he actually just died uh, of old age. Um, and maybe it's about a year ago now, maybe not quite, but um, more or less. I mean, he, he, he was dad's best horse ever. He was a special horse. Uh, and, and he, you know, put quite a bit of money, uh, you know, half a year's salary. And just to, to, so that horse could. They don't spend that much know. on people to, to retire them. You know, no, <laughs> they don't, you know, but that old horse, uh, you know, and that's just one example. There's plenty of them like it. Um, but, you know, I'm just saying that, but maybe those stories need to be told uh, a lot more than they are. That's all. Yeah, and and, and I I think kind of too that that uh, we need to do a better job of educating the public and and uh, um, you know on on these types of things that that uh, we're doing because it's it's apparent to everybody around that's involved in the sport that's come around that's seen the sport um, that's come to the barns. It's it's quite obvious about how much everybody loves these horses. I mean, it, the whole sport is is based around them. They're the most integral and important part. And uh, you know, you just spend so much time with these animals, and they just become your friends. And and I know that sounds kind of silly to people, but um, there's nothing like uh, you know going into a barn full of your own horses, you know, 20 something head, they're all, you know, in good shape. It's midnight. You're going to feed midnight oats or something. And, and you're putting in the extra hours, you know, with your team and it's just you. And, and there's just like special little moments like that for me that, that make it all worth it, that make, uh, uh, you know, working in the winter and spending all your money and, and being <laughs> financially a wreck, yeah. you know, trying to out or trying to drive no, a wagon and, uh... I guess in a nutshell, that's what, uh, you know, that's what our, our sport's all about. Yeah. It's, it's all about the horses for sure. Um, anyways, let's, let's move on to something else. Uh, so we kind of mentioned that, that, uh, obviously we're in a bit of a downturn. I think anybody that, that, uh, you know, doesn't see that is, is how would have to be blind. There's not as many competitors as there used to be. Um, and there's whatever the reasons for that, uh, may be, if you were coming up right now in the sport, how do you think it would have fared for you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I had my career, if you, if you will, when I did, I think. Um, and I don't want to scare anybody that's starting right now, but 
just the opportunity that I had, I think is a lot more than, you know, some of the kids maybe have today. Um, you know, when I started, like I said, there was four outrider shows at High River, Pinocchio and Calgary. Um, if, if I didn't have those, I, I wouldn't even have had a pass to get in the gate. Um, my career would have been over before it even got started because uh, this is just my own experience. Uh, you know, they, I finally got a chance at those four outrider shows to ride. And, uh, if, you know, my goal was if I did well in those in High River and Pinocchio, maybe they'd take me into Calgary, and that's exactly what happened. When I, when I was at the Calgary Stampede, there's 16 outriders out there every race, and now there's going to be six. So, you know, I think a lot of careers won't, won't even get off the ground. And um, a lot of the guys that I outrode with, you know, and I'm not one of them, uh, ended up driving wagons. You know, the Doug Irvines and Lane McGilvery's and Jimmy Nevada's and, and Roger Moore's, Mike Vegan's, all those guys ended up driving wagons. Chance Vegan. Uh, and a Logan Gorse, Dustin Gorse, right there, Chance Flat. So, you know, they're they're the that's where your feeders come for that build these wagon drivers. And uh, you know, I just with the economy now and everything so expensive, and plus this COVID really put a wrench into things. I just hope that uh, you know everybody can kind of hang in there, uh, work together. Uh, you know, and hopefully, you know, this thing can rebound itself in the next few years. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping for that. I know that they've, there's been ups and downs throughout the history of our sport, uh, you know, long before my time and everything like that, uh, you know, where guys had no sponsors and went down the road for the love of the sport. But uh, I'm just hoping this pandemic and, and, everything doesn't last for for too much longer it's time to get back after it no you're you you, you certainly hit it on the head there um you know with uh, with uh, how the evolution of the, the you know career the average career let's say of a wagon driver uh in the sport goes with with starting out as an outrider and then progressing and and, and you know sometimes they start out as barn hands or, or just fans or whatever it is they come to a wagon race they think it's cool they get back to the barns they end up landing a a job in the barns and then start out riding and start driving and so on and so forth. I mean, uh, there are those types of stories out there. So um, to me, it's, it's, it's certainly concerning uh, the, the, the direction that we're headed. And uh, obviously with, with this year and, and last uh, with coronavirus and stuff, and I mean, everybody's in the same boat, right? So, um, you know, everybody's uh, struggling financially, uh, more or less and talking, you know, businesses and stuff. And, and uh, so obviously we're going we're gonna to have a tough time as uh, wagon drivers and, and individual small businesses and, and the shows and, and whatever, not to mention we can't even have crowds and that's a, a big part of what we do. So um, certainly there, there's, you know, it's, it's certainly it's tough times everywhere. Um, the sport though, um, the but sport's I been think, resilient though. You know, the sport's re yes. it's a resilient yeah. sport and the people in it are a resilient bunch. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, we're going to be put to the test here in the next few years. And, uh, but the, I'm confident that, uh, you know, that resiliency is going to pay off. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, and I think it's important to enough people. Uh, and I think you said that earlier in the podcast that we have 100 years of history and heritage. I think it's important to enough people now uh, that, that I don't think it's ever going to die. I think there's always going to be some form of chuck wagon racing. And I think it's up to the people uh, who are still passionate and still care and, and, and want to see this thing continue to grow and progress uh, uh, to look out for the future of the sport. Yeah, I think that's well said. Well, Eddie, that's that's pretty much all I got for you. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. That was uh, we did quite a no, long. No, it's fun one, to but, talk. Uh, good. Yeah, no, I appreciate all the stories and uh, and everything. Where where are you at right now? I'm just at home, uh, getting ready to go to work tomorrow morning, and uh, happy to still have a job. Yeah, no kidding work. And that's, uh, that's good signs in this, this economy. So um, anyways, appreciate you having on. It was a great chat and uh, hopefully maybe one time uh, if we ever get wagon racing again in the summer, we could do maybe a live interview or something. I feel like you'd be a guy. It'd be really good to, to get down and, and sit down and chat with. Thanks. Yeah. Anytime Dayton. Uh, good job, you guys uh, for putting on this podcast. I think I hope a lot of people get a lot out of it and you guys are doing a great job promoting the sport and all the best. Appreciate that, Eddie. Thanks again. And thank you, Eddie, for joining us on After the Ninth. There was a lot in that conversation. And as per usual, I was just kind of the fly on the wall that listened. But you and Eddie had a lot of really cool conversations there, Date. Yeah, it, it started off a little bit more slow once we kind of got through all the, the history stuff and whatever, and we kind of got rolling. Um, yeah, he, he's an easy guy to talk to, Eddie, and, and uh, he's, he's got a lot to say. He's been around for a long time. Um, and, and, you know, he, he had some good points about uh, the horses and stuff and, and, you know, how many are around and, and how many have just, uh, you know, had really good careers in our sport. And, and we kind of talked we kind of glanced on the whole, you know, council culture thing and, and uh, whatever. And, and, and that negative attention, which is ultimately, um, you know, it, it hasn't affected us a whole lot, but it's affected uh, um, people that aren't directly involved with the sport. It, it's affected their perception a lot, um, which has, uh, you know, negative side effects, obviously uh, in the future, if that doesn't turn around. So, um, it's a funny thing, actually, like there's a, so, so to segue into this, there was a, a hockey coach in uh, Edson. Uh, this is, I don't know, this came out like three days ago. He's coaching a junior A team in, in Edson. Apparently they play in the States since I, I've never heard of him. Um, but anyways, uh, his name was Bernie Lynch and, uh, he's a, he was like that, uh, what's that guy's name? Gra- Graham Scott, maybe, um, you know, the, he's, he was in Sheldon Kennedy's book. Um, he, he was a, just a puke of a person. He was a horrible man. He was, he was, uh, abusing, you know, kids and, and using his power, uh, over these young hockey players, uh, to influence them and, and, you know, just destroyed a lot of lives. And, and this Bernie Lynch guy is the same way, but moral of the story is, you know, I, I click on it, I click on this link and I'm reading about it. And instantly I, I, I post it to my page. Right. And say, uh, this guy should be behind bars, blah, 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 whatever. Right. And, uh, it dawned on me after I'm like, you know what, that's exactly what people do, uh, with the sport of chuck wagon racing. They, they, you know, it's usually at Calgary or Pinoca or Grand Prairie or one of the big ones. And, uh, there's a crash or, or a horse has a heart attack or, or whatever happens. And, uh, you know, then, then there's a petition going around and then there's a whatever. And, so I understand how people do it, you know, 
to our sport, but obviously, you know, there's, there's a risk to that, um, implying that on our sport or not doing your due diligence or, or whatever. Um, and just supporting these petitions blindly when you don't know anything about it. So, you know, if you're a person out there that doesn't have any direct contact with sport or, you know, you don't really know anything about it, you've just heard what you heard. I mean, I, I understand, but, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, our sport, like, like we talked about, uh, in the interview, I mean, we, we're, we're like quite literally saving horses. Like, I know that sounds crazy to whatever you've heard, but, um, you know, horses need jobs. They need a, they need a place and a purpose or a position in the world. They're just, they're just like people, you know, um, if you don't have any purpose or direction, uh, you know, as a person, you, you end up on the streets or a low life or, or whatever it is. I don't know. Um, but uh, it, it's not a great outcome. Whereas if you have a strong purpose or a job or, or, uh, you know, you can go achieve and, and obviously life turns out a lot better for you. And I've talked about that a little bit on the podcast before. You know, I think what it is, is like, we've seen it over the past year, people just have this knee jerk reaction when it comes to social media, where you read something, and then you automatically take it as fact. And there's, two points to that I think one is everything you read in the news you really need to take with a great assault and you need to really check your facts and look at what's going on before you agree with what's written but the other side of it is before you share something maybe read two or three articles and then form your opinion because there's million articles out there and they're not always the same and as someone who's a journalist I can tell you that because it's just the way the news world works one news outlet's going to report one thing while another news outlet's going to report another thing and sometimes you don't get the right facts from one article and if you get that knee-jerk reaction you're just going to share something you're not going to know what's actually behind it. Well, that, that's, that's very true, you know, like, uh, and, and, you know, that's how it is for a lot of things. And, and like, like, you know, for me in this hockey coach or like his story or the story on him, sorry. Um, and the hockey team and, you know, uh, like I, I, I didn't, I don't know him. I don't know the story. I don't really, I just know what I read and, and it looks super convincing. And, and I think a lot of the stuff, um, on chuck wagon racing in vancouver la or wherever it's being posted you know looks convincing as well and and that's kind of a problem with the sport too is is maybe we don't have a a large enough voice uh you know countering that and, and trying to set the facts straight and and uh you know tell people about these horses and, and about you know what they are and, and uh how they work and 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 what we can do you know to uh um save more horses give more horses jobs because you know like like if they don't have a job they, they're not pets they're not lawn ornaments or at least for more most, most people because you know they cost too much it's like uh it's like, it's like a i don't know maybe a freaking elephant elephant or something imagine how much one of those things would eat in a day well yeah like it's just it, it's next to impossible to feed a few horses um let alone 50 or whatever you know like so um you'd have to be a, a billionaire to uh, save save uh, that kind of amount of horses so you know if they have jobs and, and they have a position they get a they get to live quite a bit longer it's just like uh it's just like dogs or, or cats in the spca like what happens if they don't get adopted in 60 days you know horses are horses are even worse off than that because they're most people don't have them for pets or, or lawn ornaments or whatever they they have them for purposes or um for sport or whatever so you know, um, the more jobs for horses, the more you can keep alive and healthy. And then you can also 
return that money or, or whatever, you know, for in our situation anyways, back into the horses and you can improve their lives again and again and, and or further and, and keep extending their lives, you know, like uh, the health of the sport is. Moral of the story is, you know, the more outriders, the more drivers, the more jumpers, polo players or whatever, uh, the more horses you can save, right? The more horses you can and extend their lives and, and keep busy. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah, I've spent a lot of time around, I have actually not that much time around jumpers, but but polo players and uh they take a lot of our old thoroughbreds and we actually have connections with some polo players in, in calgary and uh you know sell them horses that aren't working out or whatever done that with jumpers too or, but i mean jumping's quite a bit of a different beast past past being three four or five years old on the track they don't really have you know that much use to uh most of the population so um it's just just how it is i guess uh, in the world right now and and uh you know, the more drivers we can have, the more outriders, um, you know, we can keep involved in the sport. Ultimately, the more, uh, the more horses you're going to help. Like we said in the interview, that kind of falls back on the community and the drivers and the outriders on using the platforms we do have. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, we gotta, we gotta talk about it. Like there's no, I mean, there's no hiding from it, running from it. Um, you know, so, uh, it's, and, and I don't know why we would, because I, I, you know, obviously I'm at the stance where, where, uh, we're helping horses and we're, and we're helping, uh, these animals and, and, uh, with, with our sport and, uh, continuing their lives and, and, uh, making those horses lives better and, and, uh, giving them a job. And, you know, like I was saying at the, at the start of the interview, they do, they just love to compete. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you've been around horses or, or thoroughbreds, at least, uh, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so. All right. I think we beat that to death. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of rambling on there. I'm sorry for its first podcast of the year. So, you know, a little bit rusty. That is a hundred percent on Dayton, by the way, not on me. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely on me. I've kind of kind of been a little bit discouraged lately uh, with with where everything's at, and and uh, I don't know, just with with everything that's been going on, it's it's really tough to be optimistic, especially with my own personal situation in relation to the sport. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just uh, not looking so good for for me and continuing my sport. You know, I'm I, I quit my job and I'm back in university now so it's really really hard to run a chuck wagon outfit on uh you know student loans so um if the shows aren't strong this year sponsorship's not strong or you know it's uh, i mean i'm in school for the next four years so um yeah i've I've taken a little bit of hiatus from the from the podcast kind of to get my thoughts together and and uh yeah just figure out where i'm at so that one's on me but we're gonna keep uh keep trying to pump these out and and uh, hopefully if we do race this summer we'll we'll get a few more out and uh you know get some more uh, chuck wagon content out there and and uh keep just banging the streets trying to get our voices heard so you're not firing me as a co-host yes I can't fire you if I never hired you. I'd like to point out you asked. <laughs> Going with it. <laughs> well, that's true. All right. Let's, anyways, let's switch to happier topics. <laughs> yeah. So, so you brought this up earlier. Apparently, um, 
rodeos trying to, I heard this once in the gym, actually, uh, they're trying to make rodeo the official sport of Alberta. I don't know. Is, like, do you know any more about that? Yeah. So, um, an MLA from North Calgary actually took it to the house where they're trying to make rodeo the official sport of Alberta. But the unique thing about this, and I think this is something that we kind of hear as a debate within the Western world is Chuck Wiggins are technically a part of that because under the government of Alberta rules, rodeo includes Chuck Wiggins. So um, that would make Chuck Wiggins a part of this official sport of Alberta. And I think that's kind of cool because that shows that there is still love. There is still this um, attention to this herit- to the heritage, to the sport, to the people. It might not be on the level that you know, we want right now, but there is something there. So I guess for me, that gives me a little bit of hope of, you know, hey, there is recognition around this. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, and that's something to be, you know, optimistic about people still do care and, and people are kind of sick of, uh, of all the, you know, negative spotlight and stuff on, on this type of stuff or on these types of events, sorry. Um, and I mean, bull riding gets it, uh, like all this, all these rodeo sports get it. So, um, you know, if you're from Alberta, it's, it's, there's a 99% chance you're for, you know, rodeo and, and uh, chalk wagons and stuff like that. So if you're around it, you love it. That's just uh, the way it works. So it's, it's uh, it, that is a positive note that uh, we're, we're, I mean, I don't know how long that would last for, but uh, would be pretty cool. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. And uh, I'm more in tune with that stuff than you are. So I'll kind of keep us up to date. And if there's anything major that comes across, it will probably be blasted on all of our social media since I run that. Absolutely. I deleted mine. So (laughs) yeah, don't try to find Dayton. He he doesn't have access to any of our stuff. (laughs) That's right. Well, we'll uh, see you guys on the next podcast and and we'll... uh, hopefully be getting one out right around spring training time uh, when everything starts popping off. All right, talk to you later. Oh boy, we've got a race on the front end, and there's two dandies there. He's got that wagon in full flight. Here's the wire! But that's a day in the country.